Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Of those of you who already know Les, you know his credentials already, but just we always want to make it a point when we have tremendous people on just to introduce let people know who they are so they know they're, they're, we're not talking to Pharisees here I mean this is like you know but Les um, you know Les uh, was the um, he's a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist he was the editor of New York Newsday uh, he was editor of the National Desk he was editor of the Foreign Desk he um, started the uh, Health and Science section at New York Newsday um, and uh we're going to get, I mean, he did so much stuff, man. I mean, the, uh, the heroin trail, the, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the 70s liberation army. I mean, just so much stuff that we're going to get into. I mean, just so many things that he has done in his career. Tonight, we are remembering and paying tribute to a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Les Payne. Payne died unexpectedly at his home in Harlem last night. He was widely read and respected as a correspondent, columnist, and editor at Newsday for more than four decades before retiring in 2006. He was a founding member of the National Association of Black Journalists, also served in the Army in Vietnam. In 2013, Payne talked to CBS and reflected on what it meant to be in Washington for Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. My grandmother's mother was a slave. And, uh, and, and, and so I knew about this. This was very, very home. This was not abstract for me. This was stuff that uh, hit me as close to the bone as you can get. He'd also been a regular contributor to Sunday Edition here on CBS 2. Les Payne was 76 years old, a mentor to so many, including me, ultimate sounding board. When he told you job well done, it meant everything. Tonight we send our condolences to his wife, Violet, and their three grown children. Quite a footprint he left behind, though, huge, right? Huge shoes to fill. Yeah. Thoughts and prayers with him and his family. Five, four, three. She's pure alligator. Pure white. 
confused. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. <laughs> Albino Veterinarians at the Old Pejeta Conservancy in central Kenya put Sudan to sleep because he was in too much pain and could not walk. He'd been struggling for years with age complications that got worse in the last few months. But he lived a rich and illustrious life, managing to stay clear of poachers who almost wiped out the entire population of northern white rhinos in the 1970s. Named after his country of Bath, now South Sudan, he ended up in Kenya from a zoo in the Czech Republic with a few others to help them breed in an environment which was more like their natural habitat. But the program proved difficult. As Sudan got older, he became weak and his sperm count was low. So now researchers are working on ways to use in vitro fertilization to save the species from extinction. This will be the first of its kind, a delicate, expensive and risky process. We want to do everything that is possible. We even tried to keep them next to the uh, southern uh, uh, white rhinos to see whether uh, you know, we could get uh, Sudan to be a little interested. Uh, so we brought in new girls and we said, please, you know, uh, can you talk to them? And they are quite pleased and they're nice, but he just didn't respond. While the northern white rhinos are the most endangered of their species, the black rhino is also in grave danger, all poached for their horn, now more expensive than gold. But measures are now in place to protect them in Kenya. In the last four or five years, uh, you'll notice that for the case of Kenya, uh, poaching on rhinos in particular has reduced by up to 80%. And that is the effort to try and make sure that uh, we protect them. Uh, it's a pity that we get to this point for the northern white rhino. Uh, as humanity, uh, we should have done better. Sudan was 45 years old, the equivalent of about 90 human years. He leaves behind his daughter Najin and granddaughter Fatu. They're now the world's only northern white rhinos. The survival of the subspecies depends on them and a technology that has never been tried before. Catherine Soy, Al Jazeera, Nairobi, Kenya. If I know that in this hotel room they have food every day, and I'm knocking on the door every day to eat. And they tell, and they open the door, let me see the, the party, let me see like them throwing salami all over the, I mean, just like throwing food around, where they're telling me there's no food in here. You know what I'm saying? Every day, I'm standing outside trying to sing my way in. You know what I'm saying? We are hungry, please let us in. We are hungry, please let us in. After about a week, that song is going to change the, we hungry, we need some food. Recent Kansas City events involving racism toward black diners have received national attention. But dining discrimination is not an isolated issue for many blacks who eat out. KCUR's Michelle Tyreen Johnson reports. Carlton Logan eats out a lot. He's a blogger who writes about recipes, a food reviewer, and an all-around foodie. He's also black. At an Overland Park pizzeria recently, Logan says he wonders how dining while black sometimes plays into those times he gets poor service in restaurants. You hear the same situations, whether it's um, delays in seating, delays in service, um, lack of attentiveness. When you keep hearing the same things and the only common denomination is the color of skin, you have to go with 
the concept that, yes, this is. Last month, at an Applebee's in Independence, two black college students were racially profiled, resulting in three employees being fired and the restaurant closing. Also last month, at a Hooters in Overland Park, a young black child who was dining with his family was spat on and called the N-word by a white diner. Studies show that black diners do face a coin toss when it comes to the quality of service they will receive when they eat out. Zach Brewster teaches sociology at Wayne State University in Michigan and has conducted several national research studies on the experience of dining and restaurant discrimination. In his 2015 survey of approximately 1,000 waiters and waitresses across the country, 53% of the participants admitted to not giving black diners their best service. Brewer says that some servers hide behind the stereotype that blacks who eat out don't tip or don't tip well, but he doesn't think that's the total story. I really did not anticipate that servers would so readily admit to discriminating uh, racially in their service. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was surprising. And I think that they're comfortable admitting uh, doing so because they're able to couch it kind of in this economic framework. Brewster said studies show black diners overall tip slightly less than white diners, but not by the wide differential that the majority of servers rely on to justify their assumptions. Pancho Villegas is a server who has worked for many Kansas City restaurants for the past 13 years. Villegas is sadly not surprised by the studies showing stereotypes toward black diners. He has seen this bias as early as his first serving job when he was 18 years old. No one was eager to serve on uh, you know, an African-American uh, table. And everyone was would say it's because of the fact that, oh, well, odds are we're not going to get a tip or, you know, it's not going to be the standard, uh, well, standard service tip, what, 15 to 18 percent. But what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Because while research may show that servers rely on tips to determine the quality of service they give to black diners, diners don't tip until after the service has been rendered. Viegas agrees. I, I mean, I would have to say if they've got that in the back of their head that they're not giving the best service possible. Almost all states, including Missouri and Kansas, make it illegal for a place of public accommodation to discriminate on the basis of race. And private restaurants open to the public are places of public accommodation. Carlton Logan hopes that people become more aware of how insidious this issue is. It can take a toll on blacks who eat out, particularly those who eat out frequently, sometimes even tipping more than industry standard to overcompensate for that stereotype. But he knows that this paying it forward only goes so far in warding off dining discrimination for other black diners. Because if we've only had these two cases, two public cases, in the past, what, 30 days, how many more happening? Zach Brewster says his research shows this to be a deep-rooted problem. In, in many ways, what goes on in the restaurant industry is just a reflection of what goes on in the larger society. And as part of his continuing research, Brewster knows that finding solutions to stereotyping is easier said than done. These are just reflecting uh, these culturally entrenched stereotypes that depict blacks in a, in a more uh, subtle, less blatant, overt way as in the past, but nevertheless continue to de- depict blacks as less worthy of of good service. While getting your water glass filled last at a restaurant may not be on par with having to drink from a separate water fountain, separate treatment still remains an issue for black Americans. For KCUR 89.3, this is Michelle Tyreen Johnson. White girl,
white girl. Truly, that's enchanting. Tell me it's a father car. That's right. He don't wanna know what's going okay. on. Cause white girls won't go That woman was arrested late this afternoon. They spent, these deputies spent about half an hour trying to get her to come out of her house. She was arrested after a neighbor said that she had been harassing him and his family with racial epithets and slurs, even in the middle of the night. For several years, Terrence Bonney had been living in Highlands Ranch, a happy place, no problems. Then he moved into this neighborhood and bought a home a year ago. That's when the problem started. And you kind of have to live on an edge, and you know, it's, it kind of sucks because this is supposed to be my home. He says his female next-door neighbor stepped into his yard uninvited and even tried to get into his house. She then posted these sheets of paper on her window. They are filled with the N-word and other racial epithets. And then there is this video, which you can hear a woman screaming racial slurs and curse words outside Bonnie's home in the middle of the night. Bonnie posted the video on Facebook. It was shot at 5.30 Wednesday morning. He took the video from his second floor window as his neighbor was shouting from her front door. What do you think when this was happening? Uh, at this point, it's almost normal. And I say that only saying it's not normal for people to behave this way, but it's a normal occurrence here only because we've been dealing with it so long. Today, Bonnie called the Sheriff's Department and showed them his evidence. A few hours later, Douglas County Sheriff's deputies were at the woman's door. She was arrested and Bonnie was relieved. I come home, you know, no matter whatever I'm dealing with at work or school or whatever, you know, you figure you come home, everything is safe and, you, you know, you're good. And you have to listen to that. We are not identifying the woman since she has not yet been charged. We hope, to, we hope to learn more about those charges later this evening. Meantime, Douglas County investigators saying that they're working on, an, on a number of mental issues and criminal charges at this time. And one more note about this story. Uh, hundreds of people have commented on the word of mouth Littleton Facebook page offering support to Bonnie. Many of them saying this never should have happened. They were just downright mad. Reporting live in Highlands Ranch, Vicente Arenas, Fox 31. New data culled from millions of children around America over decades reveals a bleak future for black boys regardless of socioeconomic status. Now, this study is out of Stanford, Harvard, and the Census Bureau, and they found that black boys raised in America, even in the wealthiest families and living in some of the most well-to-do neighborhoods, still earn less in adulthood than white boys with similar backgrounds. And this is according to this new study that I talked about that traced the lives of these millions of children. Now, what's interesting is that black men consistently earn less than white men, regardless of whether they're raised poor or rich. But 
But no such income gap exists between black and white women raised in similar households. Now, for poor children on the opposite side of the spectrum, the pattern is reversed. Now, most poor black boys will remain poor as adults, while white boys raised in poor families fare far better. Now, these gaps persisted even when black and white boys grew up in families with the same income, similar family structures, similar education levels, and even similar levels of accumulated wealth. Now, the disparities that remain also can't be explained by differences in cognitive ability, which is an argument made by people who cite racial gaps in test scores that appear for both black boys and girls. Now, further, an argument that a lot of you know post-racial liberals like to use is the fact that maybe there's some sort of class difference, and clearly by some of the information that I just stated, that's not the case either. Now, they did find something that's really interesting that I really want to get into, is what they found was that boys that grew up in our black boys that grew up in neighborhoods with present fathers actually fared a lot better. But what's interesting though, it doesn't necessarily have to be their fathers. It's just fathers in the neighborhood, more fathers around them. Now, other fathers in the community can provide boys with role models and mentors, researchers say, and their presence may indicate other neighborhood factors that benefit families like lower incarceration rates and better job opportunities. And that's where it really gets into the nitty gritty in this study, in this information, is talking about incarceration, right? And the fact that black boys are treated differently. And that explains some of the difference between black men and black women is that black boys are treated as more dangerous and they're disciplined at earlier ages and they really um, sometimes show that school to prison pipeline because they are viewed in that sort of stereotypical way that has an effect both you know, in terms of their income and in terms of incarceration right now. What's interesting is that even when they're raised rich, you know, black men raised in the top 1% by millionaires were as likely to be incarcerated as white men raised in households earning about $36,000. And that statistic is really, really astounding. Yeah, and, and the last one uh, there is also astounding. So. Let's do that one and then I wanna get into why. And that's the interesting part. So a black man raised by two parents together in the 90th percentile, making around $140,000 a year, earns about the same in adulthood as a white man raised by a single mother making $60,000 alone. Mm. So look, there are a number of possibilities as to why we have different results here and the results that Hannah just explained to you. So the right wing would sometimes, some in the right wing, would say race, uh, we told you it's not socioeconomic status. Uh, look, uh, even if they're raised in wealthy families, uh, a lot of uh, African Americans wind up in prison, right? Um, and then a lot of liberals, including myself, thought that it was mainly socioeconomic uh, situation. But this study shows that that is one of the factors. It's not to say that it's not a factor. You're still in way better shape if you grow up in a, in a wealthier household, uh, but it is not, uh, the determinative factor, apparently, it's not, or the majority factor, depending on how you want to phrase it. So, to Hannah's point, we we know, and then there's culture. So, I want to get to culture. I think culture is the hardest thing, and I think culture is not just black culture, but also American culture, mm. right? But but let's eliminate a couple of things. So, if it was just about race, then black women would be just as affected, but they are not. They make the same as white women in the same socioeconomic group. So I've never heard anyone even claim that there is some sort of gender disparity within a race. That you know that Asian women could be brilliant, but Asian men could be bad or I've never heard that. 
I don't even think the crazy right wing makes that case. Mm -hmm. So it is not about race because black women overall do okay, right? So it's not genetic, that's what I mean by that, right? It's not a matter of ethnic traits or racial traits, etc. On the socioeconomic situation, it partly is definitely that because black women do okay. If you're richer and you're a black woman, you stay richer and you stay as rich as white women in the same category. But the evidence is overwhelming that if you're a black male, it's not necessarily the case, right? So to me, and this is what I think the interesting part of the conversation is, you know, diving into culture and finding out what we think is the reality in both sides, whether it's culture where their fathers are not present, but also the American culture overall that stigmatizes and stereotypes African American males more than almost any other group. And in fact, seems definitively more than any other. We feel like this links to other things we've talked about in the past and the way children are treated in preschool mm-hmm. to elementary school. And this was across boards, this went through genders, but then it can also be determined that way too. The way teachers or caretakers just saw minority children as more dangerous or as older than they were. So a five-year-old kid, they would see this kid acting up, but he's like a 10-year-old acting up, so I have to punish him in a certain way, which also leads to the way there's the presence of police officers in schools. We've seen those videos of a police officer being asked to come in and attack a child because they're acting out or the teacher can't handle them anymore. Whatever was happening, which we didn't get to see in a lot of these cases, was they feel like there needs to be law enforcement involved right away. That's ingrained. So the, the, of all these factors, I went through this several page article from the New York Times, is, uh, the one thing that's the constant is our society gets things wrong. And we don't learn from some of our mistakes. So we can throw it out, we, we can, uh, we can blame other factors, which we already went through. I'm not gonna go into the details, you guys went through it perfectly fine. But what we, what we haven't addressed, is our perception and how the entire society sees certain folks. And that includes black people. So whenever people say, oh, so you think black people can't be racist? Well, not really. But what does happen is the same assumptions that the rest of society makes about black folks, so do black people because we live in this society. So this culture of different cultures is the American culture. And the main one that we don't acknowledge is we refuse to admit when we're wrong. As a complete country, we're Americans, we're right, uh, we're the best ever. You tell us something different, you're the wrong one. So when we try to address our problems, which is ingrained in our society, we reject it and try and put it off on something else so it never changes. This time I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm walking to New What happens when a city government decides to surveil its residents without ever having a public hearing or even getting approval from its own city council? This is precisely the situation currently unfolding in New Orleans, where the city has set up surveillance cameras that the mayor says will help keep the city safe. But whose safety is being considered? The program has been dubbed by the ACLU as Surveillance on Steroids and raises grave concerns about how the New Orleans Police Department targets people of color, who the surveillance is meant to protect, and how the program was implemented in the first place. 
Here to discuss this potential restriction on constitutional rights is Michael Isaac Stein. His recent article for The Intercept is titled "New Orleans Surveillance Program Gives Powerful Tools to a Police Department with a History of Racism and Abuse." I'm very glad that he's able to join us today. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. So. Let's start uh, with the basics. What are the plan's main components? Yeah, so the the plan is actually pretty broad. Um, It it was really started right after a shooting on Bourbon Street in 2016 um, over Thanksgiving um, where 10 people were shot, one man was killed. Um, And after that, um, the Landrieu administration, Mitch Landrieu, uh, the mayor of New Orleans, came out with this pretty broad plan, um, his public safety plan, which had a lot of different elements to it. So... Part of it was gun and bomb-sniffing dogs, um, bollards in the French Quarter, which was kind of a response to some of the terrorist attacks that we saw in 2016. Mm -hmm. But the central element of it, um, which ate up the majority of the $40 million that was being spent on it, was this surveillance plan. Um, And within that, there are a couple different elements. Um, So they built a a real-time crime monitoring center, this impressive facility with, you know, wall-to-wall monitors, um, people watching live footage all the time. Um, and basically what feeds into that as of now are maybe somewhere around 300, 350 city-owned cameras that are placed throughout the city. Um, the final element of the plan was a controversial city ordinance that would require every single business with a liquor license to put um, security cameras outside of their buildings that feeds into this real-time crime monitoring center. So, yeah, and we'll get to that last point uh, in a bit. So so there are a few components to this, but clearly the centerpiece is the surveillance cameras. So when were they first installed? So we don't have an exact date on when the first camera was installed, but we started seeing them more and more um, by November of last year. Um, and, and for the most part, the plan kind of went forward without anyone really noticing. Um, when the plan first came out, um, one of the main parts of the plan was, um, that Mitch Landrieu wanted all the bars in the city to close their doors at 3 Mm a.m. And I don't mean stop serving liquor or, or, you know, actually close their businesses, but actually close their physical doors. Um, and that's because here you can drink outside, the bars would often spill out onto the streets, and to Mitch Landrieu, this caused a lot of problems. And and that really caught most of the attention um, in the media and, and you know, in, in public conversations. Um, there, there's a headline by our local CBS affiliate that I thought was telling, um, and it says, bars to close doors at 3 a.m. and more security measures coming to New Orleans. And so that kind of, you know, shows how the surveillance program kind of passed people by. So, yeah, by, by November, we start to see these uh, cameras all over the city. And they're pretty easy to notice because they have these red and blue flashing lights um, that are on 24 hours a day. They're pretty bright. You can see them from three or four blocks away. Right. Um, but, yeah, again, November, December is when we really start to see them pop up. Um, and not only in places like the French Quarter or, or Bourbon Street, but in residential neighborhoods. I mean, there's one three blocks from my house, a pretty quiet neighborhood um, in mid-city. So, yeah, I mean, they're really not just in, you know, tourist-driven areas of the city. And these – so in, I, I think he just said this, but the video feeds are running 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. Um, they feed into the real-time crime monitoring center. And as of now, we don't know how long they're storing them. Um, they store the footage with Axon, uh, which was formerly um, called Taser, which has run into its fair share of controversy, um, including some of the elements that they're trying to produce for, for, for their uh, software, like facial recognition, um, 
you know, AI, different, different things they're trying to put into these, um, uh, you know, into their uh, analysis technology. Right. And you mentioned this sort of closed-door policy, which is fascinating in and of itself. But go back to this part you mentioned uh, earlier about the, the part of the ordinance that doesn't seem like it's been implemented, but is still on the table in terms of places that sell liquor being mandated to have surveillance. Right. So there was actually some pretty big news about that this week. Um, so this had actually picked up a lot of attention in the last couple months. Um, immigrants for immigrant right um, organizations had been protesting it vehemently. Um, cultural organizations had been protesting it, saying that it would, um, you know, cause people to not be as, you know, quirky or eccentric in the city and, and you know, kind of, uh, you know, regulate their own behavior. So this week, the mayor um, told The Lens, a local publication here, that they were going to defer the ordinance until um, the next council and the next mayor take over in May, mm-hmm. um, which on its face sounded like good news. But another thing that happened this week um, is that four different bars um, went in front of the city's alcoholic beverage board for various violations. Mm-hmm. And part of the consent decree um, to allow them to keep their liquor licenses was that they had to um, put cameras on the outside of their bars. So this could be a hint that this is a way that the city plans to go forward with the plan, even if the city council doesn't pass this ordinance. It seems like kind of a way around it. Um, And ultimately, you know, I I don't think, I mean, you know, I'm never trying to get into the prediction game, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, the city has already put in $40 million into this plan. $3.8 million is going to be the annual cost estimated. So it, to, to, to ask them to back off now, it's almost trying to ask them to back off of, an, of a large investment that they already made, um, which to me signals that they're going to try to keep pushing forward with this, whether it is through the Alcoholic Beverage Board or whether the next city council kind of takes over and, and tries to push, the, push it through again. And how pervasive is it for establishments to sell alcohol in New Orleans? I mean, this is a, a you know, city known for having a good time. Right, right. So yeah, I mean, there was a, a a study, I think 2017, that said we had the most bars per capita of any you know city in America. So very pervasive. And the thing is, like the the bars here aren't um, secluded to you know certain areas of the city. They really are a lot of neighborhood bars, um, bars that exist you know on a corner with nothing else but homes on them. Mm-hmm. I'm D.W. Gibson speaking with Michael Isaac Stein about his piece for the Intercept. New Orleans surveillance program gives powerful tools to a police department with a history of racism and abuse. So you write that there were no public hearings regarding the cameras. Um, So tell us a little bit more about the process of how it did come to pass. I mean, what was actually involved in that process? Right. So so like I said, the the plan started formulating around this uh, shooting on Bourbon Street, Thanksgiving 2016. Um, And then the first we really hear about it is in January of the next year. Um, There's this press conference, the mayor, the governor, um, you know, FBI representatives from the from the state office are there to announce this this public safety plan. And it's definitely delivered more um, as, hey, here's what we're doing. Um, there wasn't any chance to hear what people were thinking about it um, for public discussion or public input. It was just, here's what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then we don't really hear anything about it from the city um, until November when they open the Real-Time Crime Monitoring Center. And that's really the next update we get. Um, and like I said earlier, I think when it was first announced in January, a lot of people in the city had this feeling that, okay – they're trying to regulate, you know, Bourbon Street a little bit more. They're trying to keep the tourists safe. Fine. Go for it. 
Um, and then November comes, and all these cameras are around the city, you know, that aren't in the French Quarter, that are in Central City, in Mid City, you know, all around um, the city. And um, you know, we see this real time crime monitoring center for the first time. I mean, I don't know if you ever watched the show Twenty Four. But that's what it reminds me of when I see, mm. you know, all these men in headsets, you know, right. watching. And, and so people are starting to get the feeling like, oh, wow, y'all are really watching us now. Um, so, yeah, in November is when, you know, opposition starts to kind of take root and people really start to pay attention. But like I said, at this point, it's almost like the momentum is, is going in that direction. I mean, the, the $40 million is spent. The infrastructure is built. And now the question is just how many cameras they're going to add which we don't really have an answer to at this point. So there was a uh, clearly, as you've said, there was a crime that sort of uh, uh, instigated this move, this forty million dollar move. Um, but was there articula- another articulation beyond the crime, a justification that the city gave for implementation of the plan? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the, the city really does see it as an effective uh, crime prevention strategy. I mean, New Orleans has one of the highest homicide rates in the country. We have for decades. Um, so I think they see this as a real way to dissuade people from committing crimes. And I think the visibility of them is part of that. I think part of the crime prevention strategy over the past, I mean, since I've lived here, has always been about presence, mm-hmm. um, has always been about making sure that, you know, people know that there is a police presence to stop them from doing something before they do it. Um, which I think, you know, the the literature on whether that's an effective strategy is mixed. Um, but that is you know, a major um, central piece of the crime fighting strategy of, of the Landry administration. And so this seems like it might fit into sort of uh, the, the policy of predictive policing. Can you briefly describe what predictive policing is? Right. So so predictive policing, I mean, it's a pretty broad idea um, and it can, you know, um, take a lot of different forms. But the idea is to try and predict where or who um, is going to commit a crime before it actually happens to try and intercede. Um yeah, there, there's some um, language in the plan, in the public safety plan itself, um, that really um, kind of alludes to this type of uh, policing, which, you know, I talked to the deputy police monitor at the independent police monitor down here. And to her, that's really concerning um, to try and intercede with people that are seen as likely to commit crimes, because in a city like New Orleans, policing has been biased for decades mm-hmm. and um, – you know, obviously, if the police are using their own subjective, you know, measures of who is likely to commit a crime, um, they're way more likely to target a black man in this city in their in their 20s than anyone else. So the plan was put together with very little uh, input from the public uh, and pretty much out of the public eyes. With that in mind, who has oversight over the surveillance? Is there a body or an agency? Right. Um, so it's it's a little bit unclear. Um, the real-time crime monitoring center is being managed by the city's Department of Homeland Security – or the city's Office of Homeland Security, excuse me. Um, but what oversight exists, we don't really know. It seems that the best checks we have will be within the NOPD itself, which, as I mentioned in the article, is under a consent decree for a number of violations, uh, 14th Amendment violations and Fourth Amendment violations. So, you know, whether we want to, you know, put our trust in the NOPD to kind of regulate this really powerful tool is kind of a question that the public never really had a chance to, to answer. And what were the legal justifications for filming in a public space? <laughs> right. Or were so, there legal justifications, I guess, right. I should ask. 
Right. So, I mean, it was brought up, like I said, I mean, there haven't been public hearings. So the only discussion we've really had, the only dialogue we've had with the city are these two um, different, um, you know, public addresses that Mitch Landrieu gave, one in the, with the announcement of the plan, one with the opening of the, of the Real-Time Crime Monitoring Center. And he was asked about the legality of, uh, of it uh, at one point, and he said, um, this has been black-letter constitutional for a long time, or I think for years and years, he said. Um, now, that, you know, I'm not going to say it's not true, but the constitutionality of public video surveillance is really murky um, at best. Uh, the Fourth Amendment is a really hard um, amendment to kind of handle and put into practical use. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a really key um, case um, from 1967 called uh, Cass versus the United States. And basically that extended the Fourth Amendment, um, th- that phrase reasonable expectation of privacy, that's, uh, that comes from this case. And so the, basically they extended it that you don't just um, – you, you shouldn't just be protected. Your privacy shouldn't just be protected in your home, that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but their rubric for it, unfortunately, um, is the expectation of privacy that society is ready to recognize as reasonable. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, that's a really hard rubric to actually use when you're trying to make practical um, policy changes within a city. Um, and I'm not a legal expert, so you know any uh, legal interpretation I make should be taken with a healthy grain of salt. But I, I got to think that one solution to that is to make sure that with any new you know, surveillance program, that the public is well informed about it and has time to put their input into it and, and let the city know whether they think this has exceeded that expectation of privacy. Well, this is obviously something that you know, any big city or a lot of big cities wrestle with, uh, even here in New York, uh, uh, developing policy that, uh, with tourists in mind and developing policy with residents in mind. How much of tourism uh, is, a, is an economic driver in New Orleans? I mean, you've mentioned, obviously, it's a, it, we know it's a, a city that many venture to, but is there a way to quantify it? Yeah, I think it depends on the way you look at it. It obviously brings a lot of money into the city. Um, I think there's a debate to be had about how it affects um, workers in New Orleans. I mean, the service industry and the hospitality industry do not pay very well. I mean, it's a really stagnated uh, industry in terms of, you know, income. So how much the tourism industry does for New Orleans, um, I think, is up for debate. I mean, I'm not – I mean, obviously, it does a lot, and it brings a lot of money, and that's fantastic. Um, Whether we should be leaning on it. Um, to really anchor our local economy is a uh, different question altogether, though. You write about a front porch culture. It'd be uh, good to hear you unpack that phrase a little bit and describe how private life and public spaces is being compromised uh, in this newfound surveillance world. Yeah. Um, So I think uh, private life in New Orleans definitely leaks out onto the street. Um, You know, the front porch culture, it's kind of just... People hang out on the front porch. There's not a lot of backyards. You know, you have a barbecue in front of your house, not behind it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like we were talking about before, when you're, you know, drinking, you can drink outside here. So there's a lot of, you know, you know, leaking out onto the street. And um, then you have second line culture. So a lot of parades, a lot of just, you know, corner bands playing. So, yeah, I think, you know, public life is really important to the culture of New, or- New Orleans. And, um yeah, this is definitely a threat to that. I want to I want to read one quote from my piece, if you don't mind. Sure, it's just about something I don't you know, 
I'm not the right person to be talking about black culture in New Orleans, but she she says, coming from Mississippi, one of the things I love about New Orleans is how black people occupy public space here. In Mississippi, you gather privately. But here, with second-line culture, with stoop culture, black people are always occupying public space, and this is a threat to all of that. Um, and I think, you know, what's important to take away there is not only that um, public life – or, sorry, cultural life here is very public, but also it's important to understand the state of, you know – how the criminal justice system and black people in New Orleans interact as of now. Um, There's one stat that I quoted. It is from 2012, but it is fairly shocking. And it's that one in seven black men in New Orleans is either in jail, on probation, or on parole. Um, You know, we are the the most heavily incarcerated city in Louisiana, which has the highest incarceration rate in the country. So, yeah. So, you know, it... Yes, I think it's important to focus on public life and how this might affect culture and fun and, and all of that. But it, there are also a lot of you know serious consequences to what a program like this can do. Have you ever heard of the movie City of God? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it, but, you know, that that's supposed to be, you know, send, you know sending a message to somebody about, hey, Uh, You know, color does make a difference. She was elected in 2016 and became the only black woman in Rio de Janeiro's city council. Marielle Franco, a 38-year-old human rights activist, was a vocal feminist, a lesbian and a black Brazilian born in a favela. She was seen as a rising political voice for marginalized communities and people affected by poverty and violence. Last Wednesday, shortly after leaving an event on black women's empowerment, Franco and her driver, Anderson Gomez, were shot to death in what officials believe to be a targeted killing. Franco was shot four times in the head. Since her death, tens of thousands in Brazil have protested with the intent of keeping the social issues Franco cared about in the public eye. So today we want to discuss the impact this story is having. Joining us from Rio de Janeiro is Cecilia Oliveira, a contributing editor with The Intercept Brazil. In Sao Paulo, activist Jamila Ribeiro. And in Austin, Texas, Kristen Smith, associate professor of African and African diaspora studies and anthropology at the University of Texas, Austin. Welcome to the stream, all of you. Jamila, when you see the impact that Marielle's work has had and people telling these stories and sharing her work across the world. What, what do you think of that? And, and why do you think that that is? Yes, Marielle, she was a very non-activist for us, especially for black women, black feminists in Brazil. I, I knew Marielle. We have been together several times so for me, it was very shocking uh, and desperate to, to know about her death. But also, Marielle, she had important work on favelas in Brazil. She was like uh, um, a way to people from favela to, 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 to speak about the police violence and about the military intervention. So I think people who shoot it, um, Marielle didn't imagine how she was important and the impact of her death in a moment that black women in Brazil, uh, you can say that, are leading the social movement. So you are several uh, uh, women around Brazil uh, speaking about this and and Marielle was an inspiration for a lot of these women, but also I think 
um, how Marielle was important to people from favela in Rio de Janeiro, how Mariela was courageous to speak about all this kind of violence and and it's important to say that um, in Brazil you have this idea, still have this idea that it's not such a racist country, that Brazil is not so violent. And the racial democracy myth created this idea that in Brazil um, it's not a racial problem or it is only a social problem. Mm -hmm. But Marielle's example that it's a racial, social and problem in Brazil in a country that in, in each 23 minutes a young man is killed by the police. Mm -hmm. So Marielle was doing this kind of denouncing, this kind of violence. So that's why I think people are so in Brazil are so um, are going to the streets every day. Sure. We, are, we are having riots in Brazil, mobilizations every day because Marielle speaks for us, for invisible people, for the people that are killing. Um, Jamila, let me just bring in some, Jamila, let me just bring in some other video here. I want to bring in some video from France, Spain, Germany. These are all people mourning the death of basically a local councillor in Rio. Kristen, when you see these pictures, when you heard about what happened on March the 14th, your initial reaction was what? My, my initial reaction was that I was devastated um, because I knew that she was much more than just a local councilwoman. She represented in many ways the face of the kind of new black global, global movement against police violence. She represented the face of black feminism, global black feminism. She represented the face of young, a young black women's generation that's taking the lead in the fight against patriarchy and white supremacy and, and all forms of oppression, um, imperialism, etc. And so that's exactly why people around the world have really clamored in order to um, mourn her death, because she was so much more than just a local councilwoman. She she really was, she, she was somebody who many of us could, could relate to in the sense that she represents the, the face of, of young Black activism right now. And so, for example, the first thing I thought about, given my work around police violence, was that this was this was really a message to all of us that organize against anti-black police violence and i thought about the the founders of black lives matter here in the united states all black queer women and so marielle was a black queer woman and so this is something that i think is so much bigger than a local issue in rio and it's very much transnational in every way and so my first reaction was was really one of shock and dismay and mourning, but also the, the recognition that this was this is about something much more than Brazil. This is about something that really ties into all of us. We've been all around the world. Been all around the world. Johnny Lee Gates was convicted in 1977 of the rape and murder of 19-year-old Katrina Wright in Columbus. Newly released notes prosecutors made during jury selection show the letter W next to white prospective jurors and the letter N next to black ones. They indicate that the prosecutors identified 
the black prospective jurors from the start, singled them out in their notes, and then struck them to obtain all-white juries. That's attorney Patrick Mulvaney with the Southern Center for Human Rights. It's been fighting for months to get these notes made public. One of the prosecutors in the original trial also helped with jury selection in another Georgia case that ended up before the U.S. Supreme Court. The high court ruled that prosecution included, quote, a concentrated effort to keep black prospective jurors off the jury. But WABE legal analyst Paige Pate says proving racial injustice, even with notes like these, is extremely difficult. All the prosecutor has to do is come up with a race-neutral reason. And it doesn't have to be a good reason or a logical reason. It just has to be one that's not based on race. The Southern Center also got jury selection notes from five other Georgia death penalty trials from the 70s with the same prosecution team. If there are enough white people available, those black defendants ended up with all white juries, just like Johnny Lee Gates. Still, Pate says he's not sure this new evidence alone will be enough to win a new trial for Gates. His next hearing is set for early May. Lisa Hagen, WABE News. Is that a real gun? Yeah, yes, this is a real gun. Do you kill people? No, if some guy's hurting someone, I try to shoot him in the leg or something just to stop him. Mama says police mishoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? And Mike Tenzing's payout is $344,000. Through the Fraternal Order of Police, Tenzing did release a statement. He said, quote, I'm satisfied with the settlement agreement with the University of Cincinnati. This case has caused a lot of strife in the community, and I believe the settlement will allow for healing to continue. I certainly will do that for me after two difficult trials. The final total payout, $5,644,000. That's how much the University of Cincinnati paid out to Sam DeBose's family and Ray Tenzing. Tenzing, a former UC cop, shot and killed DeBose during a traffic stop in July 2015. Tenzing was fired 10 days later and charged with murder. After two trials and two hung juries, charges were dropped. Now consequences continue to add up. We learned today UC will pay Tenzing a total of $344,000, $244,000 in back pay, and $100,000 for attorney's fees. UC President Neville Pinto released a statement saying he realized this agreement will be difficult for the community, but he's hopeful that we can focus on supporting each other. The university also paid out the DeBose family. That settlement, $4.8 million. A judge decided each of his 13 kids would get $218,000, his six siblings $32,000 each, DeBose's mother was awarded $90,000 and his father $25,000. $1.6 million went to attorney's fees. In addition, UC also offered each of DeBose's children free tuition, which is estimated at about half a million dollars. Today, Tenzing said in a statement, I want to thank those who stood with me throughout this process. The Fraternal Order of Police Ohio Labor Council, which paid for my legal defense, played a crucial role. My attorney, Stu Matthews, and expert witness Jim Scanlon helped ensure that I received a fair trial twice. And DeBose's sister, Tarina Allen, told WLWT, we are feeling this hard. Other than that, she said she wasn't ready to release any other public statement at this time. Reporting at the University of Cincinnati, Karen Johnson, WLWT News 5. The New York Times 
article, I mean editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. (laughs) The Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink, under, under Trump, on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in stage white supremacy. There was a package that exploded inside of the home. Police saying the city is likely facing a serial killer who has been linked to four bombings so far this month. These packages are being delivered during the nighttime hours. We have a trauma activation, 65-year-old female, penetrating trauma, head and torso. Four bombings in the city over the past three weeks are linked and maybe the work of a serial bomber. We will leave no stone unturned because we are not going to allow this to go on in our city. I haven't heard a word about any of the Austin bombings from anyone within my community. I'm absolutely horrified. Uh, The more it looks completely random, the more frightened I become. We're together as people, as beings that have been affected. Um, Black and brown people being affected in the beginning and now all of Austin being affected. So, So with limited information, it causes an incredibly vulnerable feeling, thinking schools will be targeted next. It's so hard to have your community in the national news about something that is so terrible and so distant from everything your community is known for. It has been a long almost three weeks for the community of Austin. Package bombs and other types of bombs that have been placed throughout our community. We have seen members of our community that have lost their lives and others whose lives have been forever changed due to significant injuries. But beginning within the past 24 to 36 hours, we started getting information on one person of interest. We felt very confident that this was the suspect in the bombing incidents that took place in Austin. As members of the Austin Police Department SWAT team approached the vehicle, the suspect detonated a bomb inside the vehicle. The suspect is deceased. We do not know what the motive was behind that, and hopefully as we continue this investigation, we will uncover some facts so that we can try and understand, although this is something that there is no rationale for, but we can try and understand what his motive was. Thank you very much. Late last night, a suspect in the bombings that have terrorized the Austin metropolitan area in Texas blew himself up in a car in the town of Round Rock after being chased by police. You heard the voices of worried and concerned citizens around Austin there. You also heard Police Chief Brian Manley describe the suspect's death there in a press conference early this morning. This is The Takeaway. I'm Todd Zwillick. Saeed Hassan has joined us since the beginning of this crisis in Austin. Saeed is a reporter for KUT, and she's back now with the latest. Saida, welcome once again. Thank you for having me. Uh, Saida, tell us some of the details of what happened overnight as described by Chief Brian Manley there and, and others you've spoken to. Sure. So last night, the suspect in the Austin bombings was killed after a standoff with an Austin Police Department SWAT team. And this happened in the early morning hours in Round Rock, which is a suburb of Austin. 
Investigators say they located a vehicle that they believed was being used by the suspect in a parking lot of a hotel, and they called for backup, and while they were awaiting for backup to arrive, the suspect began to drive away. At that point, police pursued him in their vehicle, and that's when they say the suspect stopped his vehicle in a ditch along the side of a highway frontage road. And as that SWAT team approached him, the suspect detonated a bomb inside of his vehicle, ultimately killing himself. Now, the chief said that that individual was a suspect before the chase, that they were closing in on him. He started to drive away, as you said, Saida. What have officials said about the information that led them to suspect this person? Well, we don't know a whole lot about the suspect at this time. Police have said that he was a 24-year-old white male, but police really haven't released a lot of information. They're still working to investigate what exactly the motivation for these attacks may have been, and I'm sure we'll hear more in the days to come. And have police determined whether this individual acted alone or, or had help? We we don't know for sure. So that's another reason why our police chief, Brian Manley, is encouraging residents to remain vigilant, because we don't know whether this suspect acted alone or whether there may be other people still out there in the community who may also have been involved in the attacks. So, you know, the police chief encourages residents, though there is somewhat of a sense of relief after the early morning, the events of the early morning hours, that folks still need to be vigilant and, you know, still be mindful of any suspicious packages or anything that looks out of place in the community. Right. I imagine there also has to be the very real possibility that other packages could be in the mail system, FedEx, or or in places around Austin that may have been placed or sent before the events of last night. That's right. So Chief Manley noted that, you know, police actually don't know uh, for sure where the suspect was for the past 24 hours before they located him in the vehicle outside of that hotel room. So, you know, there's no, nothing to say that there may not be other packages or devices that have been left throughout Austin before they before they came into contact with him. So they're still encouraging folks to be mindful, to continue to call 911 if they come across any suspicious packages. I know police have been just inundated with hundreds and hundreds of calls since they have asked people to report any suspicious packages. And they say, just keep on doing that. Continue to act out of an abundance of caution. Well, Saida, we've talked about this as you've joined us so many times during these horrible attacks around Austin, but give a sense as possibly we get to the end of this terrible episode uh, about the attitude and and the fear among Austin residents. So much of these attacks seem to be random. It reminds me of attacks like the D.C. sniper attacks in 2002 when people were being shot around the D.C. metro area and citizens just had no idea who was next being shot at bus stops outside of their cars. The randomness of it was was a major tyranny on people. Yeah, that sounds a lot like what I've heard folks expressing here in Austin over the past three weeks. I think that especially with the changing nature of these attacks, with the tripwire and then the packages being shipped through FedEx that, you know, it seemed really random and really unpredictable. And there wasn't really a way to tell, you know, where this attacker may strike again. And, you know, people were already being mindful of packages, but then things seemed to change. Um, You know, his tactics seemed to change. So after last night, I do think that there is somewhat of a sense of relief in the neighborhood. I've heard a lot of folks expressing on social media that they hope that this is over. Um, But you know, again, I think that there is still somewhat of a sense of uncertainty um, and folks are aware that they need to remain vigilant. Saida Hassan, reporter for KUT in Austin. Saida, thank you and thank you for joining us as this as this episode is unfolded in your town.
Thank you for having me. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches. Not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize. terrorize. This week began with the city of Austin, Texas, terrorized after a series of bombings. It ends with a suspect dead and investigators trying to answer the why behind the attacks. In between, the bombings themselves and their coverage spurred a national conversation around race and how we talk about perpetrators of violence. The suspect in the Austin bombings, who is white, has been described as troubled by both police and the media. NPR Code Switch reporter Gene Demby has been looking into this. Welcome to the studio. Hey, Audie. So what exactly are people taking issue with? We should start with this clip of the police chief in Austin talking about a 25-minute confession that was found on the bombing suspect's cell phone. It is the outcry of a very challenged young man talking about challenges in his personal life that led him to this point. And so a lot of people feel like if that suspect weren't white, that he would not have been extended that same sympathy. Um, But is there any actual evidence, right, to support the idea that different language is being used when it comes to, let's say, non-white perpetrators Mm -hmm. of mass violence? So first, we should just make sure that we're not conflating statements from the police and the way that news outlets report these stories. But part of the coverage has to be devoted to what the police chief said. And there's a lot of research that shows that race does shape the way the cases of violence like this are covered in the news, and that the characterization of this suspect by this police chief fits into this larger idea that white perpetrators of these kinds of attacks are portrayed, if not sympathetically, then at least not as terrorists. They're portrayed as challenged or troubled. There was a headline this week in the news uh, that read, quote, Maryland school shooter apparently was a lovesick teen, unquote. And it was referring to a white high school student who shot two other students at a high school in Maryland. And that characterization came from the police, but that was the headline that was propagated on social media and elsewhere. So you're saying people have actually looked at this question of whether, um, like, if if the same shooter had been Muslim or mm-hmm. of Middle Eastern descent, that uh, the headline would have somehow been different? Right. And I spoke to someone named Erin Carnes at the University of Alabama. She studies terrorism and how it's covered in the news. She pointed to research that shows that how the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando was covered versus how the shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston was covered. The shooter at the Pulse nightclub was of Arab descent, and Dylan Roof, the shooter at the Charleston Church, was white. And just comparing those two cases, they found that Omar Mateen was called a terrorist. It was described as terrorism, whereas Dylan Roof was called mentally ill. There was some discussion of whether or not to label it terrorism. But the media overall didn't label it as terrorism, even though it very clearly meets an academic definition of what terrorism is. Now, that academic definition of terrorism is ideologically motivated violence that is meant to intimidate. In Karn's own work, she and her colleagues found that when the strict definition of terrorism does apply to an attack, there's about four and a half times more coverage of one of those incidents in print media if the perpetrator was Muslim than if they were white. One argument I've seen is that somehow we should just expand the definition of terrorist, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that it would include someone like Dylan Roof or the Austin, Texas bomber. So this is what a lot of people want. They're frustrated by the idea that if we use terrorism to only describe politically or ideologically motivated violence, 
that it wouldn't include a case like this. There's a moral weight to calling something terrorism. And when white perpetrators are excluded from that categorization, it feels like we're letting them off the hook or treating it in some way as an aberration. But Carnes would say that instead of expanding the definition of terrorism, we might all be better served by being more cautious in how we use it and more consistent in how we use it, regardless of who the perpetrator is. NPR Code Switch reporter Gene Denby, thanks for looking into it for us. Thank you for having me, Audie. The Wisdom of Psychopaths. What saints, spies, and serial killers can teach about success. Authorities in Austin, Texas, say they have found a 25-minute confession tape from the man who terrorized the city with explosive packages. The suspect blew himself up early this morning as a SWAT team closed in on him. Investigators have identified him as Mark Anthony Condit. They believe he made all of the bombs he used in the Austin attacks this month, which killed two people and injured several others. To find out more about the background of this person, Courtney Collins of member station KERA in Dallas spoke with one of his childhood friends. Jeremiah Jensen and Mark Anthony Condit used to be tight. That was before Jensen left for college in Dallas. It had been a few years since they'd spoken. Then came today's news about the man authorities suspect is behind the recent string of bombings in Austin. I woke up this morning and had about 10 reporters telling me that my friend was a serial murderer. Jensen, a former KERA intern, was good friends with Condit in their late teens. They were part of the same homeschool community and both belonged to the Austin Stone Community Church. Their families often had lunch together after Sunday services. People have asked me if I saw this coming or if I like, if he exhibited any tendencies that would have made me think that he was capable of something like this. And the answer is no. Jensen says Condit struggled socially. He could come off as kind of dominant and um, pugnacious in conversation. However, as he got to know you and, and, and as he became more comfortable over the couple of years that I knew him, he started to he started to soften. Jensen describes Condit as a philosophical guy, a deep thinker. He was athletic but didn't play any organized sports. He was happy. He wonders what changed since they fell out of touch. I, I think that maybe he was lonely when he died. And I don't know why he did what he did. Um, I don't know why he succumbed to hatred or, or the loneliness or the sadness. Jensen used to spend a lot of time with Condit and assumed he would go on to have a good life. He's not a psychopath. Something broke him. Something broke him, and I, um, I don't know what that was. As investigators work to piece together a motive and loved ones grieve the victims of these bombings, friends of Mark Anthony Condit are at a loss to reconcile the person they knew with the person authorities believe terrorized a city for three weeks. For NPR News, I'm Courtney Collins in Dallas. The serial bomber who terrorized Austin blew himself up this week. Investigators still search for a motive. The attack shook the city as residents everywhere felt at risk, and no more so than in East Austin, which experienced the initial bombings. Susana Almanza is president of the Montopolis Neighborhood Association in East Austin and joins us now. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. I understand you live just uh, six houses away from one of the people who, who was injured lives. What what's it been like for your neighborhood these past couple of weeks? Well, it's it's been kind of scary. It's, people have been anxious and people have been very worried. 
and we were very concerned that because it had happened all east of Interstate Highway 35 and it was communities of color, Mm -hmm. uh, that somebody was uh, targeting people of color. The first victims were African-American and um, and Latina, as you note. As you note. Um, the authorities have, have say so far they haven't, haven't identified a motive. But uh, I'm wondering if you can help us understand historically maybe why some of those feelings might run deep in, in your community. Well, you know, um, historically we've always been a very segregated community and also economically segregated uh, and so, you know, when the first bomb went off the city, the police thought, well, it was uh, either maybe a drug deal that went bad or maybe he had done this to himself. So looking at it, that's very uh, kind of racial profiling. You know, because of all the racism that exists, we just say it's easier for the institutions, whether it's, you know, the FBI or or ATF, it's easier for them not to be honest with the people that race had a place to play in it. The fact is that three people of color families were devastated, and it was done by a white uh, young guy, conservative. To us, it's pretty much very much racial, and I don't think they'll be able to change our minds about that. Ms. Almanza, t- tell us about East Austin. You grew up there. What was it like yes, when, when you were growing up? What's it like now? Well, uh, you know, like I said, it was pretty much segregated. The city put together their 1928 master plan, which began to, at one time, Austin was pretty much integrated. uh, But in that master plan, it decided that all people of color would be moved east of the highway. And not only would we be moved east of the highway, but all the unwanted facilities, you know, hazardous facilities, chemical using facilities would also be in our communities. We have substandard housing. We have uh, lower uh, education attainment uh, in East Austin. So you think about, you know, higher crime rates. You talk about more poverty. So when you look at all this evidence, you can just see how the big, uh, there's two cities within Austin. East Austin is changing from what we've read, isn't it? Absolutely. East Austin is changing. And and I tell you that it took us a decade to clean up our communities and get rid of the most hazardous facilities. And after that, uh, the city then began to gentrify our communities. We all bought our homes from two to $18,000. Mm-hmm. If you look now, they're all valued from 250000 to a million dollars. So the taxes have Displaces. May I ask, have you uh, have you ever thought of just selling your house, making the bundle, well, I, and moving elsewhere? Well, they they call me all the time, and it's gotten to where it looks like it's a personal letter, but it's really they you open it and they wanted to buy your house, and so I've called the realtor and I said, I, I got this notice that you want to buy my property, and they said, Oh yes, yes, we're very much interested, and, and I said, Well, I want one point five million dollars. And they say, oh, my boy, Mr. Mansa, that is not the value of your house. I said, I don't care. I'm setting the value of my house. I'm saying that if you want it, it's $1.5 million. And if you don't, then take me off the list and don't call me and don't write me anymore because I don't want to leave. Susana Almansa is the director of PODER, a community organization in Austin. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, 
March 24th, 2018. So I have been told, pause, moment to recognize the passing of legendary black journalist, Les Payton. context of white supremacy, black journalism, extraordinarily important uh, in the work to replace white supremacy with justice. In fact, included uh, an important segment where Les Payne, uh, he was giving some of the information that was shared during our study session on Gwen Ifill, uh back her book uh, we read right at the end of 2016. Hmm, Les Payne. Uh, this is our compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, suggestions, counter-racist ideas, certainly uh, any ideas about the audio segments that we just heard. Lots uh, to say about the situation down in Austin, Texas this week. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, share the program uh, if you think it would benefit other non-white people, victims of racism, to hear the content, maybe help them get a better understanding of what white supremacy racism is, how it works. You can tweet it, put it on Facebook, Instagram, wherever you do your social media activity. Uh, a few things before we get to some of the callers. Uh, first off, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest. If you think the program is constructive, you can visit my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Address again, racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. The flood uh, has displaced Gus T. So uh, make sure you drop an email to get a current mailing address. Huge thanks, enormous thanks to all the folks who have supported uh, the cows uh, nine years. Hopefully we have aided uh, folks get a better understanding of what it means to be classified as white uh, and perhaps even some suggestions on things we can do to help counter racism, white supremacy immediately. You can also support uh, by visiting uh, my wish list at Amazon.com. It is under Gus T. Renegade, uh, linked on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, it's also on uh, my blog as well. Uh, thanks to all the folks who have nabbed items from Amazon over the years. Super, super appreciated. Uh, greatly uh, thank all the folks, generous listeners uh, who have supported us for nearly a decade. Hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Couple quick things before we get started. Uh, I have a, I have an addendum. Uh, if people heard the broadcast that we did, I guess a week or so ago, with Cheryl Moses, a black female victim of white supremacy, she is the creator of the Come Meet a Black Person project. 
This was something that they had uh, in Georgia towards the end of last year. She was on the program a week or so ago. We were talking about we had a, a mild bit of conflict around uh, definition of racism, white supremacy, her definition. And uh, you have to just listen to it in the broadcast. At any rate, during the brief exchange before she left early, she she arrived a half hour late and left early. But during the brief exchange, she said that a wonderful white woman, put that in quotes, had written a letter with constructive information. And I said, who is this wonderful white woman? I did snicker at that point, but I did ask, you know, who is this wonderful white person? And she couldn't remember her name, but she said she would email me. And she did follow up with uh, the email. Uh, I will uh, read it to you unedited. So she wrote the email on March 13th. She writes, thank you again for having me on your show Sunday as a follow up. And as promised, the white privilege test I spoke about was created by Peggy McIntosh at Wesley College Center for Research on Women. You are correct in that the equation I gave racism equals racism, excuse me, racism equals race prejudice plus power is from the People's Institute created by Dr. Wade Nobles. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's equation is racism equals white supremacy equals apartheid. Both Dr. Francis Cress Welsing and Dr. Noble have accurate definitions of what racism white supremacy is on all levels. However, it is used in ways in which it can be changed. Many people have definitions, but the challenge is finding the solutions to racism white supremacy. I will continue with daily learning, serving, spreading facts, and speaking truth to power on racism, white supremacy, and many social justice human rights issues. Thank you again for having me on your show, Cheryl Moses. VGQ, Victims Guaranteed Qualified. Again, that just means any individual who is classified as not white, uh, they are guaranteed qualified as a result of being a victim of racism that they can take any position they want to on racism, white supremacy, what should be done about this problem, even if they say that white people are the greatest thing in the history of the universe and we should all give them a hug every day. VGQ on that too. Now, uh, as for... Miss Mo uh, Moses's commentary. All I can say is uh, I thought Dr. Peggy McIntosh was who she was going to say. People who've been with the cows for a while. She, too, has been a guest on the program. This has been my experience the entire time that I have attempted to address white supremacy, racism and attempted to deal with counter racism. This is pretty representative of what I expect when talking to black people. Now, we're talking about individuals, not just people that I'm familiar with, people that I know and have interviewed some of them like dozens of times. And it's still talked to, in my opinion, just no regard at all, <laughs> like not even the common courtesy to even listen to what you have to say, because Miss Moses did interrupt me a lot. And I said that annoyed me. That's been my experience. And even within all of the discourteousness and her showing up late and everything else, she called me brother. That's been my experience. And that's why, hey, <laughs> number one, this program is about talking to white people. I've just seen this so often. I'm so thankful. It was just random. The sound clip I played at the beginning of the program, Mr. Fuller was saying, frequently when black people speak to other black people victims of racism we are not looking to learn we are not seeking truth 
we are just looking to put another black person in their place. And I have seen this across non-white people, victims of white supremacy. That is frequently the case that you have to be very, very mindful of that and just try to do the best that you can to minimize that. One thing also is to be mindful that this is likely to be the case. So if it looks like that could be happening, that this is not really a session about learning and seeking truth uh, and, you know, trying to solve problems, uh, then, whoa, maybe we might need to even rethink whether or not this discussion needs to take place. Maybe that's what Miss Moses did, but very, very important. Uh, I think uh, it's very, very common, even when people are saying, yeah, brother, yeah, sister, right on, brother. Been my experience, some anti-blackness can follow within five seconds of the last right on, brother, right on, sister. Continuing, uh, I thought the segment, or I guess I can get one more, that segment about black uh, boys specifically, and if they grow up in an environment with a lot of resources and equal to, you know, well-off white children, and it's still going to likely high probability of things turning out not well for them and them regressing uh, financially from where they were as a child uh, and all of that. Listening to that report, uh, it just further for me solidified the feeling I have all of the individuals who espouse what is called black male privilege, it is astronomically incorrect and dangerous within the system of racism, white supremacy, spreading a very dangerous theme concept of confusion to understanding what's happening. Extraordinarily dangerous and downright illogical. I went back and listened uh, to uh, Dr. Athena Matua. She's a guest on our program, also a victim of racism who uh, espouses the concept of black male privilege. And I went back, I was just trying to get a sound clip to play where she was, you know, giving some of the points where she was saying that she thinks that this is valid and this is why. And it was so difficult. I just, it was very difficult to seek logic listening to someone talk about the existence of black male privilege within a system of white supremacy. I just want to make sure that that is on the record in case anything happens, if there's another flood and I don't survive. Gus T. Renegade thought the entire concept of black male privilege was dangerous, nonsense, totally illogical, not supported by evidence. Next, that segment on New Orleans where they said one in seven black males, black males specifically, were either incarcerated, greater confinement, parole, some form of what they call the criminal justice system. In New Orleans, that surveillance, that's one. When we talk about context, I was going to invoke a metaphor, uh, but context, when you can look at something from a long period of time, not just hearing, this is what happened today in New Orleans and, and all these wacky cameras that have popped all around the city. If you can think back to 2005 with Katrina. So now to think what has happened over almost 15 years from that time, the displacement of about 100,000 black people, death of who knows how many black people, probably over a thousand directly associated with the levy failure 
and the flooding and police shootings and killings and everything else that went on and just random white terrorists who were going around uh, killing people. We did the program on that. I can speak about this with a little more authority since we did signature work on New Orleans and have for a long time with a number of different guests that we've had on the program and doing Gary Rivlin's book, Katrina After the Flood, uh, on the book club. But I mean, if you think about what's happened in, in New Orleans over that long period of time, devastation of the public school system, lots of black children missing out on education and traumatized black mental health from everything that happened there, environmental uh, poison. They Who even knows all of the poisons and toxins that came up from that toxic flood water and getting all of that out before people were able to come back in and the mold that was in the houses and the charity hospital uh, being closed down and quote unquote gentrification. They tore down a lot of public housing afterwards and didn't have places, adequate housing for black residents, even if they wanted to come back. And then the rents and property values skyrocketed. Same thing we heard in the clip about Austin. Uh, all of that first white mayor in about three decades, Mitch Landrew, who is finishing up his second term on this white mayor's watch, New Orleans ends up with surveillance cameras. Like, wow. I mean, if you can just draw that path of white destruction from August 28, 2005 up to right now, wow. Continuing, Mark Anthony Condit, white identity extremist, uh, I'm sure folks have heard a plethora of interesting things over the week. I didn't even get to do as much investigating as I would have liked over the week. Some of it because I still think that this event has been uh, poorly covered uh, because most of the victims, at least the initial victims or the victims who died were black males, black people. Uh, and this is a white terrorist. Not as much attention, not as much coverage. I don't think Democracy Now! did a great job uh, in covering this and most of the other news outlets. Uh, I'm thinking of the Parkland shooting and some of the I feel like the Parkland shooting is is even still at this point dominating the Austin situation. And the Parkland situation has been resolved for weeks now. I mean, they're on to other things and what have you. Uh, but if folks have uh, observations, thoughts on what has transpired over the past a week now that they have this alleged suspect uh, who they say uh, detonated some sort of device and killed himself. If folks have thoughts, interesting things that they have seen reported, uh, would love to hear different information. Uh, I would just remind people, we talked about this years ago. That's why I played that segment with Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. She talked about it specifically. She talked about the reconstruction of white supremacy and uh, a return to more explicit direct violence. Racism, white supremacy is war. There is no starting of a race war. That is white supremacy, race war, violence against non-white people. You do have times where you have an increase in direct, explicit naked violence against non-white people. And that is exactly what Dr. Welsing predicted years ago on this very program, the reconstruction of white supremacy. In fact, Lashes, she had another turn, 21st century, post-reconstruction. Uh, post we talked about all of this years ago and predicted exactly these types of events. 
context of white supremacy. The number again, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you could take about five minutes to share whatever comments uh, or questions, thoughts that you have, that would be great. Uh, that way, everybody gets at least one opportunity to share. Uh, if you have other questions or thoughts, just make sure everybody gets at least one turn and then you can ask or add whatever additional comments you have. Uh, for this broadcast specifically, if we could not use metaphors, that would be great. I have concluded race soldiers, whites, one of the ways that they practice deception, racism, is by using metaphors. They will do so in a very deceptive manner. Frequently, they will <clears throat> use similes, analogies to suggest that two different entities are the same equivalent. And often that is not the case at all. Uh, it is a masterful way of promoting confusion. They'll particularly do this a lot when they're talking about issues related to white supremacy, racism. Non-white people, we have been exposed to this behavior for a long time, myself included, and many of us, Gusty included, we are still learning. As such, sometimes we are missing logic to articulate our thoughts. We will substitute a simile metaphor of some sort and hope that that is sufficient. Often it is not, and it just promotes additional confusion. If we could be explicit direct about what it is that we want to say that would be super appreciated and I will prompt about metaphors if you know you're in a noisy environment if you could use your mute button that would be super appreciated uh, if you whatever commentary you want to say and then just mute your line then if you want to come back and add something later just unmute your line but that would help preserve the audio quality of the broadcast and then other people don't have to fight over you know unnecessary noise in the background when they are trying to speak much obliged with that we will hit the phone lines if you have commentary to share lines should be open proceed good evening Gus greetings Thomas in New York um, man, I swear, sometimes we're in sync. Um, I wrote down, <laughs> and you just went through it. Um, I have one in seven, um, in jail, probation, or on parole. New Orleans isn't always has been a city where white supremacy has worked extremely efficiently. And, um, then I was going to get into the Katrina, post-Katrina, but you just hit it right on. I don't want to use the metaphor. Um, and they, the lady um, in one of the clips, she was talking about the racism in the restaurants, and she just said um, um, a black black kid was spit on in a restaurant. I just wanted to make it clear she should have pointed out that that was a white firefighter, a public employee who has to make life or death decisions based on biases, and um, I, I would think that he would be unqualified to effectively do that job based off the action and the word he used. Um, the serial bomber, Mark Anthony Condit, um, let, I want to call him what he is. He's a suicide bombing terrorist, um, a white supremacist. Never called a terrorist on news. Um, in the paper, he's been called the serial bomber. 
I just thought that was extremely, um, it's just how the system works. Um, similar to the terrorists who shot up the country music concert, but was never called a terrorist. Um, and of course, Dylan Storm Roof, who not only did he terror, was he a terrorist, he assassinated a public official. He was never called neither. Um, why did this guy even bring up John Muhammad and Lee Malvo? You know, that was a masterful display of white obfuscation, white some obfuscating and changing that conversation or injecting um, some black people that did something. That, and, and this is one of the reasons why you say no metaphors. That doesn't even, those two incidents aren't nowhere near similar, in my opinion. Um, besides the fact that they were both terrorist um, incidents, but the way they were carried out, it just it just didn't make any um, logical sense to bring them in other than to the fact that those two were black. Um, predictive policing, which will have um, similar names. Um, it has um, other names that would be called like mechanical or algorithmic judgments. Um, I watched a video on this, and it was um, extremely interesting. They were in Santa Barbara, California. And in um, Santa Barbara, California, the computer told the reporter and the cops that there's going to be a crime taking place in this four-block radius and that they, this crime will be taking place between these hours, which would have been, you know, a half an hour from the time. So they rushed there. And they've been, they were sitting there and nothing's taking place in, in the area that they're um, surveilling. And finally, you see a guy riding a bike, he gets off his bike, a black guy, and he starts walking through. And the cop is like, okay, here's our suspect right here. Let us get, jump out and get him. And the reporter's like, whoa, he didn't do anything illegal. Let's just see what happens. And the cop says, no, this is all we need. The computer told us. This is what's going to happen. It's our job to engage the suspect. And he said, but he's not a suspect yet. So the cop agrees to sit there and watch. And this man just continues to walk. When he walks right out the area on his bike, he committed no crime. So this is how predictive policing is going to work. Um, it's going to get even worse um, once you add in these 5G towers um, where they'll have the ultimate surveilling um, apparatus that, that – on the planet, and um, there will be no way to escape. Um, this is from an article. I'm just going to read a short one here, uh, just some pieces of it, but I'll, this article is very good. It's from the Washington Post, uh, with whose slogan, for some reason, is democracy dies in darkness. Um, I think that was just really compelling. But um, it's, the title is, um, Big Data May Be Reinforcing Racial Bias in Criminal Judgment Systems. And just as a backdrop, if these are algorithms and they're being programmed by white people, then they are contain the same racial biases that white people have. Uh, consider a judge tasked with making a decision about bail from two, two defendants, one black and one white. Our two defendants who behaved in the exact same way prior to their arrest, they used drugs in the same amount, they have committed the same traffic offenses, own similar homes, took two, they took their children to school in the, in the same morning every day. Um, 
but the criminal justice algorithm do not rely on the defendant's prior actions to reach bail assessments. So now, um, if you go to jail you know, for doing something and you get bail, the computer's going to decide whether you go home or not, how much bail you get. Those, just those actions for which he or she has been previously arrested or convicted because of racial biases in arrest and racial and conviction rates, the black defendant is more likely to have prior convictions than the white one, despite identical conduct. Um, so just to, just to, that's just a brief way of how they're going to be working this predictive policing and also algorithmic judgment. I mean, my line, Gus. Appreciate that, Thomas in New York. I thought that was important about the uh, the spitting incident where the black child was spat, spat on uh, was indeed not just some random white individual racist that was a firefighter uh, who did that. I thought that was extraordinarily uh, important that they left out as well. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in that we've not heard from, if you have commentary, proceed. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, thank you for taking my call. This is Red in Nevada. Um, hello to everyone as well. Um, I'll start off with, uh, I have been listening to um, the, what is it, the hate you give. I actually have the book. I'm actually mad I have I bought the book, but um, it is what it is. But yeah, um, there was a phrase that um, Duckett used, which was Negro trauma drama, which I, I think that's probably going to be one of my favorite phrases. But um, then, you know, it was also talking about how there aren't any books um, about um, young white kids um, popping pills or, you know, this opioid crisis, which is one of my favorite topics. And so I tried to do a little bit of research trying to find something, um, well, not about them, but, uh, but um, what is it, young adult fiction. And I, of course, I couldn't find any, but I was able to find um, some very interesting books, which I think I might end up reading. The closest thing I was able to find, uh, at least about some white teens um, popping pills or being drug addicts, but still not being um, tar- not not being offered to uh, other white teenagers to actually read, was um, a book that came out last year. But there was one by a journalist, and it's called Clean. He wrote one called Beautiful Boy and then another one called Clean. And the secondary title of Clean is Overcoming Addiction, Ending America's Greatest Tragedy. And I thought that was such a a wonderful title because that's the greatest tragedy in America. But just – and then I also was – I looked up on YouTube. He had like a little book study about how, you know, just like how white people like to talk about, well, it's not the addiction. It's – you know, well, it, it's the person's not bad. It's just, you know, he, in his case, it was his son and his son wasn't bad. It's just that, you know, he just so happened to have this bad thing and just talking about different white people problems. His son was on a water polo team and that was, he couldn't talk to a girl that was getting to him. And that's why he kind of went into drugs. Still, still a drug addict nonetheless. But um, the, one of the things that I, uh, I came across this uh, week was there was a, on the um, govern on the uh, public access uh, channel here in Nevada? They were speaking about um, the opioid crisis here, and the the main the main thing that I took away from it was that um, in Nevada they have the first public uh, recovery high school. It's called Mission High School, so it's targeted for opioid addicted teenagers and um, 
most of them when they showed like the uh like a little video of some of the kids it's like it seems like it's a really small school you didn't see classes of more than maybe 10 kids and most of them seemed like they would either be classified as white or were actual white so maybe classified as white who might have spoke spanish um and they um not sure how they didn't say how like the school was actually um, uh, started, but they did say that uh, the school was given a hundred thousand dollars just to beautify it because it was kind of there's gray walls. So I guess they didn't want these drug addict kids to feel like they were in prison. Um, there were also a part in that um, set in that show or news clip, what have you, where they said that um, there were some judges that were completely changing um, the justice system to help fight addiction and that made me think about when I lived in Nevada before um, there was this I've, I've never had any issues with the criminal justice system but unfortunately some of the black males that I was around they did and there was one particular judge he had a Porsche and the license plate on his Porsche said 180 days so it didn't matter what you did you, he was going to give you 180 days and so that part just made me think about that where I'm like it, it these people are, are, are really, really dedicated. Um, another thing real quick on that part is um, another uh, in that clip that they had said that um, these people aren't, it's, it's not like these people are bad trying to get good, but they're sick trying to get well. And that's some of the things that I've been, you know, kind of seeing throughout this whole, uh, uh, whenever they describe this, their, their drug addicts. The last thing I'll say is that with, um, I've been trying to make sure I get the papers often um, and I still, I pretty much read the Las Vegas Review Journal. And for the past couple of weeks, they've had um, pictures, front page, they've had pictures where it kind of seems like it's almost sex, like sexually leaning pictures um, where, and it's uh, in, involving sports. The first uh, couple of weeks ago, it was, I guess, like this college basketball team. And they were, I guess they were celebrating, but there are all these, it was like a pile of females and women and they were like um it, it just seemed kind of weird but like somewhat sexual and then last week there was a a picture of two black males kind of embracing and they were on a basketball team but it like how they snapped that picture it could have been taken a lot differently it seemed like their mouths are open and they were really close but you can tell that it was just in the moment of them celebrating but this week it wasn't necessarily um, black people, but it, they were talking on the front page. It's this white Mexican who has been taking drugs, but he's not in a disheveled state at all. He's actually like in this fighting stance. So it's still like, you know, even though this is also a drug addict or somebody who has taken drugs, he's still not put in a sexually explicit way or um, in a way that, you know, a drug addict is usually um, photoed. And I'll um, end it there. Thank you for allowing me to share. Appreciate that red in Nevada. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Can that be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, this is uh, Henry from Chicago. Uh, I just wanted to quickly uh, talk about a news report or a newscast uh, that happened uh, today. The uh, the uh, white terrorist. Uh, was uh, supposedly killed uh, early in the morning. I, I watched the news, and apparently uh, they were trying to get, uh, 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 I guess, a news feed from from Austin, Texas. And when the uh, when the white news reporter from Austin, Texas, basically told 
the news uh, people from from the, the Chicago station. Uh, they she basically uh, she basically said the same thing that the that the Texas uh, the Austin Texas uh, uh, station uh, the, the Austin Texas police said about this bomber uh, being troubled. So when she said that. Uh, one of the newscasters here, uh, non-white black uh, female, basically challenged her and said, now, wait a minute. If he's so troubled, uh, how did he premeditately kill, you know, all these people? How could he still be troubled? And so the white newscaster from Austin said, well, we don't know. Uh, it, the, his motive has not been uh, known yet. So... I kind of, I kind of, uh, I kind of thought black self-respect to the to the non to the non-white black female uh, newscaster who basically challenged her or challenged the the Austin police on the report of him being a quote-unquote troubled uh, troubled male person, and uh, that that's uh, you know that's their standard uh, coded answer for any time a a white person uh, kills. Uh, uh, non-white people, especially black people, they're troubled. They're not labeled terrorists. They're not labeled anything else but trouble. So uh, that's all I had for now. I'm in my line. Hmm. See what happens with her career. She faces uh, some sort of reprimand or what is said to her uh, off the air. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we've not heard from you, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, how's it going, everyone? I wanted to speak on an international situation. <clears throat> the situation in South Africa concerning land rights. Uh, I was watching, I was on YouTube and I was watching uh, Irritated Genie and he posted a video of Alex Jones. There's a video of Alex Jones going around on the net and he's talking to um, a quote-unquote Sweelander or Sulander in South Africa, which is a, a group, a more radical group of white settlers that have been there for a while. Um, these are, they tend to uh, carry a lot of weaponry and they're very aggressive. But um, <clears throat> he was, Alex Jones was interviewing him on the show and um, it, there was just a lot of interesting dialogue going on and uh so the Siouxlander was telling him how his ancestors built South Africa up um and that you know South if if South Africa is the last Christian country in the world and you know with faith in God they will protect the land that they built up in South Africa. Um you know that was interesting. That just reminded me of Christianity being a religion of white supremacy. Also, um, Alex Jones, every time uh, he was telling him to leave the country and he said, no, we can't leave. And he, Alex Jones said, well, you're getting in the way of Wakanda. They're going to kill you. You're getting in the way of Wakanda. I just I, I found that highly uh, interesting as well. And um, so the whole situation is uh, weird because Australia has said that they will fast track 
immigration rights for white South Africans to Australia, which is another set, settler colony. Um, the native black people there, they're all but gone. And um, just be careful um, around whites and South Africa, because they try to bring it up to juxtapose the situation in America because the role of the uh, majorities are reversed. And um, it can be very confusing. I had a roommate, white female, I was confused. And she brought up the situation and she said, why do, why do black people still care about slavery? And I said, what? She said, you know, there are white slaves too. And I said, what do you mean? She said, in, in South Africa right now, you know, there are white people in slavery. And um, I had to call her out. I just said, I don't believe that's correct um, at all. And then I said, well, even if it was true, what do you expect? Do you ex the white people did it first. So do you expect them to not get it done back? And she kind of just stopped talking about it after then. But I'll, I'll mute my line for now. Context of white supremacy. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks who dialed in that we've not heard from, thank you to Thomas in New York. I thought that was also a great point about the uh, reference in the news clips that we heard that was made comparing the Austin, white Austin bomber to the D.C. sniper situation from the early 2000s. Uh, I thought, yeah, that reference was just to interject uh, to just even on a very minimal level to make sure that we are moving people away from thinking that whites are the only people who do this sort of thing or that this has anything to do with racism, white supremacy, because there are black people who carried out crimes like this too. I thought that very racist, they try to do that on a consistent basis. I think that's one of the ways they practice uh, white terrorism and confusion. Other people we've not heard from. Seen other folks that we missed completely? Did see other hands? Did we nab everybody or folks spectating for the moment? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, everyone. This is uh, the caller from Virginia. I had a comment about the restaurant clip. Um, I kind of want to hear some hear what people think about this because I've heard this quite a bit from servers in the industry that they do um, tend to notice that non-white people, black people in particular, are poor tippers. And I've spoken to um, black people about this, and, and it seems to be um, true for many that they do feel that they should not tip very well. And it's almost as though... Um, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess, for, for those concerned. I, um, you know, so the folks who come into the restaurant and they plan in advance almost to give a five cent tip or a penny tip or a dollar tip. Um, and then the waiters 
the servers, you know, respond in kind. So I think that's something that's a little bit disturbing to me. I don't overcompensate when I tip, you know, but I do try to baseline give that 15% because I don't want, um, you know, people to just look at me as if I'm somebody who doesn't tip. But I'm kind of curious to hear how people feel about that because I've heard so many black people say, oh, yeah, you know, and they kind of almost brag about it. Yeah, I left that person one penny. Oh, I left that person five cents. I left that person a dollar. So I'm just kind of curious what people are doing out there in um, the cow's land on tipping. I'll mute. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, the restaurant eating out tipping thing is something we talked about uh, before on the program. I know the some of the other times that it has come up. That hasn't been my experience in general, that Black people, certainly not that Black people brag about not tipping when they go out. That hasn't been, in general, the Black people that I've been around uh, my time on the plantation. Um, in fact, I have heard more Black people talk about overcompensating because of concerns about how they are going to be served or treated or perceptions that Black people don't tip. Uh, I think Mr. Steele had a code that when he goes out, uh, Ken Steele, he's dialed in numerous times, might hear from him today. I know he talked about it before when it came up. He says his code is when he goes out, if it's a black server or non-white server, they start at a certain baseline and they can only go up. Uh, if it is a suspected racist server, they start at a certain baseline, which I think is lower than the baseline for the non-white server, and they can only go down with bad service. Uh, Gus T., I would say, uh, from the particularly from the audio clip that we heard today, where they talked about black people overcompensating, over tipping, because they think uh, that uh, the server will think that black people don't tip or they won't be served well. I would say all of that about white people thinking black people don't tip is nonsense. I think Karma spoke about that emphatically before. White people practice racism. You could go in and tip a hundred percent. White people practice racism. I do not think black people are cheapskate uh, tipsters, certainly no more than whites who do come out and brag about not tipping uh, when they go out places and what have you. I don't think that is the case at all. In fact, I would probably be willing to wager that it's probably more black overcompensation uh, to try to show, you know, that, hey, we can tip and that I am going to tip well and black people aren't stingy and cheap. Uh, and I suspect it's probably more of that going on and black people are still getting bad racist service uh, and that's probably putting it mildly uh, because if they're saying that it's just slow service or taking a long time to serve someone that's not even getting to all of what did they do to your food uh, I was even going to go back in the archives and just pick out because these incidents happen all the time uh, where they had the Popeyes uh, Papa John excuse me delivery driver who got caught singing the song uh, nigger, 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 nigger. It, uh, I think he did some sort of butt dial accidentally and it recorded him for like five minutes after he had just delivered a pizza to a black person. Now, what did he do to the pizza on the way to delivering? I just, all of that, I share karma's uh, total uh, disgust. I don't think it's anything to do with black people being stingy or anything of that nature. I think white people practice racism, period, on the tipping. And I have strongly for years advocated black people drastically minimizing eating out because it's probably not a whole lot that you can do to minimize whites terrorizing and doing things to your food or just giving you bad service. And even going to eat at a non-white restaurant does not stop that. President Obama talked about that in his book, Dreams from My, uh, Dreams from my Father. And I've experienced that uh, where you go to a non-white establishment and it's the same thing where they treat the white customers better and 
that sort of thing. I just I would encourage people to the system of racism, white supremacy, unless you can find an establishment that you're pleased with that has non-white servers uh, to try to minimize eating out because it's just probably not a whole lot that you can do to guarantee that you're going to get quality service and that your food is not going to be tampered with unbeknownst to you and other folks that you're eating with. But we've talked about it. I'm sure folks can can chime in and give their views this evening, but we have talked about it a lot. It is in the archives on the broadcast. Uh, other folks we've not heard from at all. You have commentary. You can answer the question about the tipping and all as we proceed. Hello, can I be heard? Uh, well, nab puff first. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Gus. Um, just kind of want to talk about the tipping. Uh, I've seen it from both sides. I just wanted to answer the caller's question a little bit um, and respond to it. Um, I've seen it from both sides. I've been a server. Uh, in college, um, and my experience was that servers actually do, like, internally talk about that. Like, they'll avoid certain tables. Like, when it's a big black, when it's a black party that's coming in with about 10 or 12 people or whatever, I've seen them, you know, not pick that table up or be slow to get into it because they really don't want to wait on them. I've seen it from both sides that, you know, they don't, they say that they don't want to tip them or whatever. They don't want to anticipate a tip or even wait on them at all, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the white people just, and the white servers, they just piggyback on what they say and stuff, you know, or whatever. And, um, I've, like I said, I've seen it from both sides, and then now as a now as an adult, you know, I you know when I go places or whatever, when I do go somewhere um, and get a table, it's they run the people's feet off the server to do wait on them. I've seen it. They they you know some black people. I mean, we all different people is what I'm saying, and everybody didn't come in with the same, you know, mentality or whatever, but um, they run people's feet off and just leave them $2 and all that. That's not, I think that's not right or whatever, but I've seen it from both sides, and you know the white people, the white servers, you know, they, 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 uh, have in other words, what they're doing is they the black servers that have that attitude that black people don't tip, then they like say little comments to egg them on, and really they agree with them, like really like on another like on another level. But they don't the black servers don't see it because they don't they don't understand you know white supremacy. Uh, and go, you can go ahead to the next call. Appreciate that, Puff. Uh, I think run their feet off, metaphor. Retired fighter, retired firefighter. Did you have commentary, sir? <laughs> Greeting. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I, I haven't uh, thought a, a lot about the issue other than uh, what what's on my mind about uh, tipping in itself. Uh, I read somewhere uh, a while back that, uh, tipping was considered to be an insult. Uh, and, uh, another 
mark that you can identify it from a uh, uh, movie standpoint in the famous movie Petrified Forest. I think it was one of Humphrey Bogart's uh, first movies. Uh, in that movie, uh, it, it was a uh, restaurant setting, and uh, there's a sign that you can see uh, that says something about no tipping. Uh, you know, that, that gives some kind of evidence towards this article that I read. Uh, myself personally, I don't, I don't feel comfortable, uh, going to restaurants. Uh, uh, and, and I think in my mind, eating is something that's kind of like private amongst, maybe amongst people that, uh, you are more familiar with. And I can see maybe going to, uh, someone's place of residence or your own residence. Uh, even going to somebody else's place of residence, it it should be well planned out on what you're going there for. Uh, So uh, maybe that's something that uh, would encourage us to stay out of restaurants. Uh, But anyway, uh, to what I was uh, going to participate in, uh, I uh, sent a text to uh, a longtime attempted uh, uh, counter-racist associate of mine uh, over the uh, issue of quote unquote uh, gun control, uh, which is which is probably would be in the word guide uh, used with caution, <laughs> uh, as far as the word is concerned. But I'll just read it uh, and start. I start off by saying, don't want to be accused of being negative because some people, possibly with good intentions, have helped organize these walks slash marches but what should be the constructive outcome expected, especially in proximity with racist suspects directly involved. As a matter of fact, today's actions could be a repeat, and I have in parentheses, March on Washington in 63, anti-war marches, mid-late 60s. People do graduate from grade school, and whites have been killing each other in mass school shootings for decades. And I have, uh, it goes back to as far as 1927, uh, perhaps longer. Uh, and I have down here, last but not least, I watched a, uh, a documentary on mass school shootings. And it last, the, the documentary lasted over six hours of the carnage of white on white killings in, in school, in the schoolhouse, uh, from kindergarten to college. Uh, and that's only in this part of the world that is called uh, the quote-unquote United States. Uh, it's been going on for a very long time, but it has it hasn't, hasn't been advertised uh, in many different fashions. The first one that, that they uh, had in this uh, particular uh, documentary, uh, the person who did the killing was, a, was, was an administrator, uh, was an administrator and a political official that was mad about something, and uh, he didn't use a gun. He just had he had he had a such he had a massive amount of dynamite that he used to literally blow up this school. And ironically, similar to uh, the situation that just took place about seventy-two hours ago with the white male, he blew himself up. You know, so I mean, uh, time would tell on what's the outcome of all of this. You know, as far as all these marches and whatnot, and the whole idea about voting. In itself, you know, I mean, that's been going on for a long time also. 
Uh, that seems to be the answer that everybody is, is talking about. And no one has brought up the, situ- the, the words racism, white supremacy. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Appreciate that retired firefighter. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, if we can save uh, our commentary about the tipping uh, for about the last 20 minutes, just because uh, nine years of the cows, man, we have talked about the tipping thing a lot. Some of the folks that are here right now, I know you remember at least one conversation where we talked about tipping uh, on the cows. Uh, Dr. Joe Fagan. Uh, his book, Two-Faced Racism, I've mentioned it before. He has a great section uh, in the book that talks explicitly about the racist code that whites have de- refined. I was going to say developed, but refined over the years in the restaurant industry, different codes that they use for not seating a table with a lot of black people and just lots, lots and lots and lots of information. We talked about that on the program, too. But we'll table that. If other folks have commentary, uh, we'll make sure to return to that uh, before we conclude just with this week with the Austin situation. I thought that was important. Should take precedence over tipping. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Uh, yes, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, good evening again. Um, I recently listened to a program on the Cal did, I guess it was in 2010 or 2011, on doublespeak. And when I heard some of the clips, it immediately made me think of that program because one of the things the author mentioned was that doublespeak is the language of white supremacy. And I know that um, part of the media coverage, like in the clip, has been talking about the fact that the language is so different with black victims versus white perpetrators. Now, this is obviously nothing new. The fact that they're talking about it, I guess, is what is surprising to people. But um, I, I think a key point is the issue of mental health, because I think for non-white people, it's almost as if we can never have mental health issues, as if white supremacy in itself has no effect on us. But whenever we have a white perpetrator, the immediate thought, whether they have a history of mental health or not, is to claim that, well, this act is so random, it's so opposite of the society itself that it must be a mental health issue. And again, I immediately thought of the black shooter in Dallas who shot, I believe, at five policemen who had a history of mental health, but immediately they tried to link it to Black Lives Matter and all these other things because they were trying to frame Black Lives Matter as a terrorist organization. So um, the doublespeak and the use of language is so important, which is why this program has helped me so much to try to frame things accurately and use language um, correctly so that you can hold people accountable when they speak. The other thing is there's been recently in the news a shooting of a man in his grandmother's yard. Um, He was shot about 20 times by police. Um, Initially, they said he was a robbery suspect. He had a gun, but it was a cell phone. Then it was a a crowbar. And then ultimately, they said he was unarmed. So um, I I think, again, the language is is so important in in holding um, people accountable for what they are doing to us. Because, again, that's going to help us deal with the propaganda that we're facing when it comes to white supremacy, because that's how we learn to think correctly and, and come up with correct solutions. Um, 
And another thing, I don't know if anyone has any commentary on it, but I also found this interesting, the celebrity support behind the Parkland shooters and kind of the movement they have going on. I noticed that uh, prominent black celebrities tend to fall in line with anything that has to do with white victims, but they're very leery, very leery about supporting any kind of um, when it when it comes to black victims, you hardly ever see the same kind of support from major celebrities. And we're talking about whether it's Oprah Winfrey, whether it's entertainers, uh, basketball players. And I think that's significant because it highlights, again, how our thinking and our actions are all controlled. And it has to deal with whether or not we have sympathy towards our own people whether or not we are really dealing with subconscious anti-blackness. Um, because when the lady was speaking about what happened, in, what was happening in Austin, how the communities were segregated, and then it took them years to clean up their communities, and now they're being regentrified. I mean, these are things that black people are working in their own communities to, to combat, but yet what you hear a lot, a lot of the, the, the complaints, you hear whether it be on news or in private conversations is that black people aren't doing enough to help themselves. And I think really that that's, that's going back to not recognizing that the problem is white supremacy, that whatever we are working to thrive in our communities, we're combating something that's way bigger than just the problem with economics or education. There is systematic white supremacy that then gets backed up with violence, with terrorism and all these other things. So, um, that's just some of my, my, my thoughts on some of the clips. Um, I'll mute my line. Appreciate that. I uh, just wanted to say uh, quickly with uh, Micah Xavier Johnson is the suspected uh, black shooter in Dallas with the officers that happened in July 2016. Uh, I, this is just my personal code. I applied the term suspected or alleged shooter because there was no trial. Anytime that there is no trial, uh, there's no co official conviction. I do not just say that this person was the shooter because I don't know. Uh, and in fact, in this case, they used uh, a drone to detonate the body. So, I mean, I'm just going by what they say. I make sure to emphasize allegedly uh, suspected reported uh, shooter just to make sure that there you know, is some question uh, about what transpired. That's just my personal code. The other thing uh, with regards to black entertainers, uh, all Non-white people, all victims of white supremacy have some degree of anti-blackness, Gusty Renegade included. So I'm sure that does impact how we sympathize or relate to other black people and ourselves. However, I think with quote unquote entertainers or celebrities, I also think that a lot of times they have a very direct race soldier influence mitigating how they respond, whether they are allowed to respond. And in fact, uh, I remember a specific incident uh, Marcus Smart, who is now in the NBA, when he was a college basketball player, he alleged that a white person called him a nigger and he had a physical confrontation. He resorted to counterviolence in dealing with it. He was reprimanded and this became a big deal. And when they were talking about it, uh, another suspected racist came out and said that frequently college athletes, especially at big time programs, uh, entertainers, that they are told 
racist things are probably going to happen. Someone is probably going to call you a nigger or a jigaboo, a spear chucker, maybe all three uh, from the stands, whatever. Don't say anything about it. Don't talk to the media about it. Don't say anything at all. So my suspicion is that these people are often conditioned to ignore racism, white supremacy. If you want to continue to, you know, make a few dollars, be in this position, then you should probably not say anything about racism, whether it happens to you or any of the other Negros on the plantation. Uh, and I think that is important in terms of how they respond, what they respond to, or when they do not respond. I could be in error. Other folks uh, who dialed in that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, line should be open. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to the uh, callers and listeners. About the uh, black male uh, privilege or whatever that is, um, sexism does not exist. Women are not subject to men. Women are subject to white men. Uh, That's very different. Women are mistreated by men. Men are mistreated by women. Um, racists try to use the lie of sexism to get people to be mad at men in general or use the lie of classism to get people to be mad at rich people in general, anything, anybody but white people. And so they just want to take the focus off of them. You take the focus off of them. You don't strategize about doing something about them. Um have more to say, but I, I think I might save it for later because I had two other things. One I'll mention right now. I wanted to ask you, Gus, do you remember the show that you did on uh, Stockholm Syndrome and you read from Pam's book from Black Love is a Re- Revolutionary Act, I believe, um, and I think you even broke down the um, definition. Do you remember, like, the date of that show or, or anything like that So because I can't find it? Um, if not, I understand, but I just thought I'd ask you because I've looked for days and I asked Mr. Fox and I've tried everything, so I thought I'd try this. Uh, Pam, uh, shout out to Pam. I uh, hope she is doing better. I have uh, called and emailed and I'm hoping we can touch base and get her on the program just to check in and let everyone know uh, how she has been doing. But Pam has been on the program so many dozens of times over the years. I'm absolutely certain I could not pinpoint uh, an exact date off top if I uh, can go back and kind of look through to, to pick it. Are you just wanting to hear that specific broadcast? So you, you know the date so you can hear the whole thing or that's that's what you need specifically? Yeah, I want the the whole thing because I okay. just want to hear everything that you said on Stockholm Syndrome. Okay. I'll uh I have to go back and, and dig through. I guess other people can make that if you have any any time because Pam has been on the program so many times over the years. Uh if you want to go back and dig through, that would probably be in the description if that's one of the things that we highlighted uh from her book and the Stockholm syndrome specifically. Okay, can I add something else real quick? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I um I wanted to because the whole thing that I was even saying was about uh black male supremacy, like, you know, Black males are the are the primary tar- targets of racism because they are the biggest threat to racism because black people are the most victimized. The strongest people in that in that in that group is going to be the men. So you got you know men are 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 black men are, are, and males are are you know the most uh, murdered by racists. Um, stop and molest, also called stop and frisk. Um, Women, we black women, we get more loans than black men do. Um, 
we have more jobs than black men do. So no, we are not subject, you know, to you guys. So this, I mean, this, <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I, my patience is, is, is real, is, is real, uh, short with this because that just is so obvious that black men and males are the most victimized of any group in the world. And so I just, yeah, I just wanted to say that and uh, I'll mute my line. Thanks everybody for listening and thanks guys for taking the call. For sure. Quite a homework assignment there with uh, that Pam episode. Other folks we've not heard from at all. If you have comments, questions, suggestions, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, thank you very much, sir. Greetings to us, the host, the listeners and callers. I wanted to start out with, um, it was an episode of, I think it was Inside Edition, where there was that, um, the story about the black male being um, executed and shot and I think it was in his backyard. And what they is like after that segment, they show a toddler that was choking, and you could see the uh, white enforcement uh, officer. He, I guess, helped uh, resuscitate or bring the child back to life. And it showed another segment, brief segment of some children in, in New York having a snowball fight with police officers, okay? And for one of those segments, they said, hey, you know, this toddler was just about to, you know, near, uh, nearly pass away or, or die or whatever. And they showed a clip of two white officers. See, these were the heroes. So it's just that... Uh, once again, the, the deceitful nature of racism, white supremacy, even on area entertainment, television, where they can do that, they can portray themselves as um, being destructive towards you, perpetrating violence, and then portray themselves as the heroes and the saviors at the same time. And there was a I know it's a uh, slogan going around on uh, March for Our Lives. I think that is racist, um, especially when you look at the, the symbolism and the letters like for R is black. And like it made me think of Black Lives Matter. So it's saying March for Our Lives, and that could be white racist codification. Four hours, white, um, white for well, like march for our lives. At least that's how I interpreted it. And there was a like that segment where they was like they were comparing white males to black males. And if you notice, I don't know. I think that was Young Turks. She said, uh, when it comes to white males and them growing up in a I guess impoverished situation, they tend to fare. I think that's the way that's the term she used. They fare better. Um, but I don't know if she was reading some kind of quote back or whatever, but that that was an act of racism in my view. At least whoever who 
whoever originally wrote that, that was like racism um, manifesting right there. And definitely with the uh, the terms they use, like challenging, or this was a challenged team or a troubled team, they, they tend to keep using these words, they recycle them. And words like regime and like refugee, uh, immigrant, like thug, all of these kind of terms apply to somebody not white. So they they keep that out there. They keep that in that propaganda so that when non-white people interact with each other and when white people interact with non-whites, something destructive always comes to the surface in the mind and the mistreatment is going to continue to happen. So the, the system is just very, very powerful. Uh, just just when it comes to just how they have so much control over the language. So like I, I definitely agree with uh, like coming up with words and just studying the way that we communicate. And uh, that's all I have to share right now. And thank you. Words are very important. The term fair was used a few times both this week and last week that were uh, critically important, uh, I thought. Uh, that Incidentally, that, that segment on the Young Turks, uh, and I'm just bringing this up because we've talked about the Young Turks, we've listened to their content. I think it might be an interesting project to analyze the times that they bring in black people to comment on racism. Cause I think most of the time they don't, they don't have a black person on camera at all. When they talk about racism from time to time, they will bring in a black person, Jay, I think the black male, or sometimes they have a black female, but it's, I think you can perhaps pick out some patterns when they bring a black person on the set and then what the black person has to say. The black person never speaks first. I feel pretty confident saying that. The black person never speaks first. They get to them like, you know, down the line after the, the important people have spoken. In that segment, and the Young Turks was the segment where they were talking about uh, black males, uh, black male students and their outcomes, regardless of income and how bad it is for, him, for them specifically. I thought in that segment, he just sounded very inarticulate in comparison to the other people. And when I say inarticulate in that context, I mean, uh, his thoughts and ideas did not seem as well planned and put together. Uh, just It just did not sound as polished. And I think that sort of thing, when you, those segments are scripted, uh, you can see that they have sheets of paper in front of them that have their notes or might even have the whole script of what they're supposed to say. I don't know if they're working with a teleprompter or not, but I mean, they have producers editors, lots of folks who, you know, help them get that whole project together. So for the black person to sound uh, less well-spoken than the other folks, I think that has importance. And then for what he was saying in that segment, segment, I wasn't even sure because he said some people will say that black people can't be racist. Not really. I wasn't sure if he was agreeing with the sentiment that black people cannot be racist or if he was negating it and saying that that wasn't true. I'm not even sure. But he pivoted from that to uh, black people have the same notion. That's something that I think is significant in a segment that's talking about white terrorism is this bad that even when you have black children, black boys specifically in wonderful environments with great income, 
they still high probability they're going to end up, you know, poor and with nothing uh, in the system of racism, white supremacy. That's how bad it is. And the specific targeting of black males, how do we end up with black people have those same types of negative ideas and what have you? I'm not even discounting that. We do. We just talk about we talk about anti-blackness all the time. Pam, huge champion of talking about the importance of anti-blackness, but whites are to blame for that, too. And that was not articulated in that segment. It just it pivoted to blaming American culture. He gets VGQ as well. However, for the Young Turks, I would not be surprised at all if his commentary was ghostwritten, edited. Who knows? Uh, I just it was very noteworthy. Uh, what he had because that was a black person I know you all just had the audio so maybe you didn't see or maybe you didn't know but the final speaker there black person what he had to say very interesting and I think anytime the Young Turks bring a black person on the set to talk about racism white supremacy it is worthy of particular scrutiny uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all if you have uh, commentary line should be open Anybody we missed completely? Anybody have a hand up that we've not heard from at all? Hello, ma'am. You heard? Yes, ma'am. Hey, everyone. My guest caller from the 712 Iowa here. Iowa caller. Reporting from, um, reporting from Sioux City, Iowa. Um, I'm glad you're, you are as safe as you can be in the system of white supremacy after the flooding. And I hope everybody that's the center as safe as they can be in the system of white supremacy. Um, real quick, I know you said um, about the, the black diner thing. I, I just want to say real quick, the woman used a chicken and egg metaphor, and then I never understood it. And so I agree with you, sir. It's just very confusing when they start throwing these phrases out there. But um chicken and the egg metaphor, whatever that meant, but we know that white people did not want us in their restaurants when it was, you know, formally okay for them to say, nigga, get out, or nigga, go get your food from the back. And so saying that you don't know which one came first, I think we know um, which one came first. And when the man um, was dealing with the neighbors uh, yelling, you know, nigga, nigga, get out, get out of my neighborhood, jiggable. Um, something like that happened to my daughter. She's going to school at South Dakota State University where it wasn't somebody was yelling at her. She was in the bathroom and a white girl um, was in the bathroom with her. And the girl just said, oh, nigger, and just left out. And I was so, um, I'm, I'm happy that me and my children, sometimes, I can't say they listen every Saturday, but sometimes they, they listen to the cows and we sat down together and listened to Dr. Wilson just trying to, um, better understand what's going on uh, with racism and white supremacy around us because honestly I, I, I knew um, white people had a real bad issue with us but I didn't know how deep it was as far as the medical and the education and the economics and, and the minorities and so when that happened to my daughter at university um, we just you know she said mom you know it happens we, we were waiting for it so somebody did refer to me as a nigger in the bathroom and um, you know, of course, I caught the school and whatever. But if I hadn't have been listening to the cows, I probably would have hopped in the car and drove up there and just really, really just probably just made a fool of myself. Um, and um, yeah, I kind of thought I had a note about something else, but I left it at work. 
while I was listening, and that's all I, I wanted to say. Um, again, thanks for letting me speak, and I'll meet my life. Well, you have ample time for your memory to retrieve whatever it is that you wanted to share. So if it comes to you, feel free to let us know. Uh, I'm glad that hopefully the content was of some value in helping you navigate your daughter's situation. I think I've said that consistently, being prepared, having a more accurate understanding of white supremacy, racism, a definition and uh, what it means to be white. I think just that alone puts you in a much better position uh, to handle these types of things. And I think it puts you in a, in a healthier position because you're not stunned. And I can't believe this happened, that sort of thing. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, or is anybody that we missed completely? Anybody that, that had a hand up that we've not been able to hear from at all? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, so I'm a, I've, I've called in um, previously, but I went on a vacation, a family vacation this uh, past weekend, and I went to Jamaica. And um, first, when I got there, you know, I stayed at one of the resorts. It was a, a resort that was ran by, it was a like a Spanish resort. People from Spain mostly were the visitors there. So when I checked, when I was checking in, there was a big picture in the in the check-in lobby of a. Uh, it was like a plantation picture, and there was a bunch of black people working, you know, on the picture, and there was a bunch of black people working in the uh, in the lobby. What part of Jamaica is this? Uh, yes, what? Jamaica. Um, it, it was a resort. It was it, it was not a, a, a part of Jamaica that's mainly known. It, I, I want to say it was like St. Lucia or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, the the what I'm what I'm getting at the the main the main part of this that you know, I mean, a, a means of us, me and my um, my family, we were the only black family there. You know, and it was about maybe about eight of us, and we went to celebrate my uncle's birthday. And my uncle's he, my uncle, he's in a uh, tragic relationship with a white woman. So the the whole time we're there, him and his wife, and and he brought one of his friends who's also in a tragic relationship. He brought his friend with him, and the whole time we're there. They avoided us the whole time. So, you know, we're, we, you know, we're on the beach. They, they never, you know, interacted with us. They always stayed away. We even planned a, a, a birthday dinner for my uncle, and, you know, he stayed away from that. He didn't even join us for that. Mind you, we're all there, family, for his birthday. So the the main thing that really, that, that really, no metaphor, but pushed me to uh, a point of understanding about the worldwide system. Me and my family, we were leaving. And my little about um, maybe he's about two years old. He was in a stroller, put it, put it like that, to gauge the age. And 
while we were walking the breakfast hall, white women, baby strollers, and said, oh, look, the little monkey's sleeping, and kept walking. And my aunt, she said, what? 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 Did, what? And, and was ready to, the the for me. And I told her, this, this is what I'm always saying, this is, you know, it's, when you're when you're expecting it, there's no surprise. There's no surprise. So I'm I'm, I'm gonna leave it there, Gus. Uh, I'm sorry you had to experience that. Uh, your line was breaking up a little bit, but I believe I, I grasped everything. Uh, your trip to Jamaica. I, I've been to Jamaica before. That was part of the reason that I asked uh, which which part specifically you were in. Um, but if I grasped, you all were there to celebrate your uncle's birthday. He's in a tragic arrangement. Unfortunately, he avoided you all for, it seems, the bulk of the, the trip. He didn't even do the the birthday dinner. And then later on, this tacky uh, race soldier white woman goes past the strollers where a black child is present and says, oh, look, the little monkey is sleeping. And one of your family members, black female, saw this and was really outraged, had, I guess, an emotional response, and you were a bit less stunned about birds chirp, dogs bark, white people. Uh, did we hear, did I at least hear you correctly? Uh, 100%. Got it. Do you, did your uncle, uh, do you think your uncle was avoiding you because like he knows your views on white supremacy or what they call interracial dating. Is that why he was avoiding you or was it just, he just wanted to be with his white partner? I believe it was because he, he believes that the, once again, a, a metaphor, but I believe that this is, goes along with what we're talking about. The white ice is colder than the black ice. He doesn't, like to be around, you know, if, if his friends, his friends, he, he, all of his friends are white, you know, and he, he, I understand it because like you, the logic of it is you're not going to be, you, you look for ways to not be mistreated. So he, he thinks that if his friends are white, he's not going to be mistreated. Mm. Well, and, he can, and also, also. And also, I'm sorry, Jess. Also, I, I know, I understand what it is because I, I told him I had a 60th birthday party for my mother, and I told my mother when she was inviting people, I was, I told her that he can come, but his white wife, his white wife can't. And now there's, I mean, now it's causing turmoil within the family because nobody in the family likes his wife, but being that he couldn't come to the party and he told his wife, Hey, my nephew doesn't want me at the party because, because he doesn't want you there. So now it's like, you know, I mean, everything's out. In the, in the, I, mean, I mean, even when he had a cookout, he, he invited his, um, his, his wife invited her family and they, you know, it was a big backyard all of them sat at a table in the yard while we were sitting on the deck, you know, 
Um, you know, I mean, they they totally separated. They so, so I know, I know she's not ignorant. She has two black kids. She has two kids from another black man. Mm-hmm. Race soldier. Uh, I would. I think your position of not inviting her to the affair to the function uh saying he can attend but she is not welcome i think that's grand uh, i think that's outstanding uh black self-respect uh that is keeping uh in my view a terrorist uh away from people that you care about presumably uh so i think that's great i, I love that sort of stance and but that's very predictable that sort of of conflict and where you it, exactly as by design to have black people in conflict about this and oh she should come and that sort of thing by design uh tragic arrangements we talked about this for you pam pam in a racial con game uh go visit the website racismws.com uh, she's talked about this we've talked about this extensively uh through the nine years of the program uh before we derail and end up just talking about this for the rest of the broadcast uh other folks uh who dialed in if you have a hand up if we've not heard from you at all if you have any commentary you would like to share feel free i'm so sorry that happened on your vacation to jamaica although that is a spot that is known for tragic arrangements they have hedonism and it seems like that is exactly what they have set that spot up for tragic arrangements for whites to come and frolic and sexually exploit non-white people uh similar to what we just heard out of haiti anybody that we missed completely have a hand up can i be heard greetings mr Steele. didn't i get that correct you were in on one of our tipping conversations you have a code non-white people they started the baseline they can only go up race soldiers they have a baseline they can only go down isn't that right pretty pretty much pretty much that that sums it up yeah and um uh, and I also put a condition, look, if you're going to be frequenting a location, just, uh, you know, kind of amend that tipping schedule a bit. Um, just err on the side of just a standard tip so that you don't uh, get any sort of a bad service uh, at a later date if you plan on, you know, uh, frequenting a, a specific location. But um, I wanted to focus on uh, my current location um, just for a second, I'm uh, in an area of Los Angeles, I guess, known as uh, Leimert Park. Uh, that is, I guess, where um, uh, what the, um, Google Maps is telling me. That's the section that I'm in. And I'm on, uh, a, I guess, an, an uh, MLK Boulevard um, at the moment. And uh, um, uh, in front of me uh, appears to be a, a traffic stop. Um, of some sort. I, I haven't seen the uh, victims being pulled out of the car, but the officers on the scene, um, they're definitely acting um, uh, in a peculiar manner. Um, so I'm just kind of uh, taking a look at what's going on here, and I'm not moving um, simply because I, you know, I don't want to be involved uh, and uh, I don't want to bring attention to myself. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's very interesting. And then another thing that I've noticed on this street is there's a big sign. Um, and I've never seen this sign uh, anywhere in uh, the United States. I've been in uh, a number of Martin Luther King boulevards, and uh, I've never seen this uh, sign. But uh, here in Los Angeles, there's a big sign that says, AIDS is a civil rights issue, and it has uh, what it appears
appears to be Martin Luther King um, from the, the three quarters angle where he's giving the I have a dream speech. And then it shows uh, in the backdrop, it shows uh, what looks like a black and white civil rights era photograph. And, you know, I'm looking at this sign and I'm kind of trying to figure, you know, what are they saying with this sign? Are they saying that, uh, you know, HIV, uh, AIDS, uh, is that some sort of, uh, is that a, a black issue because it was inflicted upon? Is this, uh, you know, like a, a sort of a, a racial or a ra- uh, commentary on racism? Or are they trying to uh, conflate um, uh, the civil rights uh, issue with, I guess, the LGBT um, discussion. And that's something that, you know, it just left me very confused. I've never seen uh, this, uh, this sort of signage and any Martin Luther King um, across the country. Um, and then another thing that uh, I wanted to discuss uh, real quick is, uh, you know, I make this, uh, I make this plea uh, very often, but I, I want to make it again, um, victims of racism in the wake of uh, some of these, uh, uh, tragedies that you see um, unfold uh, on TV um, uh, with the, uh, I guess, the recent bombings uh, in Austin. There's just been a, a, a dearth of uh, disinformation uh, floating uh, across the Internet and being shared by a number of uh, victims of racism. And uh, oh, like God, I hope they're not like looking at me. Anyway. Um, uh, one of the uh, pieces of disinformation is that there's this image that's being uh, spread across the internet. They're saying that uh, the image of the real, the real image or the more current image of the bomber is a um, blonde, a sandy blonde haired, a white male um, with a goatee and glasses. And uh, this image is not uh, the bomber. It is a comedian whose name is, Samuel, I, I, uh, the last name escapes me. I'm just looking at this and uh, I, what's unfolding on me. It's, it's getting increasingly strange. Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, I, just uh, don't uh, be so quick to spread information about uh, what is going on surrounding these episodes um, so quickly because a number of the informations that come out immediately after these episodes, especially those that um, involve suspected white supremacists, um, come from uh, 4chan and Reddit and uh, a number of uh, other um, places where uh, suspected white supremacists congregate and conspire to uh, spread disinformation. A number of this disinformation pieces come from the group named uh, Anonymous, and Anonymous is uh, they are associated, they are suspected white supremacists. Uh, I remember they gave the disinformation um, associated with the Mike Brown case, uh, and they got a number of people, a number of prominent black people in trouble with that disinformation. So please be careful with the information that you're using um, uh, uh, and that you're sharing on the Internet. And then also... Uh, there is, uh, um, I heard on the recording earlier of this broadcast that there's a sub-conference, uh, line, uh, I, I was just wondering, uh, Gus, what is the situation with this, uh, 
this sub-conference line. And um, I'll go ahead and mute my line for now. I think that's an uh, an option that the free HD provides where I think you can have like if you if you dial in other people can be on a smaller conference where I guess everybody isn't there uh, of some sort I have never used that feature uh I think I forget forgot the code that you even do it's something that you can press on your phone to to access that but it's not something that I utilize I'm not familiar with it if you find yourself there accidentally uh the best I can suggest is to hang up and just dial back in uh, anybody that okay? Any anyone else that we missed uh, completely? Appreciate that, Mr. Steele. Anybody else have a hand up that we missed uh, completely? We have less than thirty minutes left, so please do not wait until the uh, last minute to dial in. If you have commentary, uh, the caller at nine. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Um. So I just wanted to make a few quick comments. Um. Uh. This is basically um. So go so. On Crenshaw, um, where where Mr. Steele he was talking about the signs, there's about there's about three of those signs um, going down Crenshaw between about like Swanson up to maybe like after Martin Luther King, like about uh, maybe up to Exposition, but there's like three of them in a in a short radius. Um, and then also, I want to make a comment about. The killers, they it seems like they always find the uh, the the white killers. They always find their friends. I, I it just actually hit me today. But the um this killer, the Vegas killer, they found his brother, and Dylan Roof. They actually found a black friend to speak for him. But I noticed they recently. I guess they've been finding all these people's friends. But with the uh, black kid, with the um the black killers that actually killed the um, police officers or allegedly killed the police officers. They did not find uh, any of their friends. Also with uh, Christopher Dorner, they didn't find any of their friends. So that's just something that I noticed. Um, and I'm my line. Uh, real quick. I just, uh, there's a breaking news story that's uh, developing out of Chicago. Um, they found a suspected white supremacist at, uh, at, at Union Station, and he was allegedly carrying a bag of stolen NYPD SWAT equipment. And this is just a breaking story out of Chicago. I just wanted to interject real quick. Hmm. How interesting. Well, I'll see if I can find any information on that and share uh, on, I'll tweet it, Facebook it, all that. Uh other folks, uh, anybody that we missed completely, anybody that has a hand up that has not been able uh, to comment at all, uh, you should speak up. Uh, M. Handisi, are you with us, sir? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Greetings to you, the hosts, the callers, and the listeners. I was going to make mention about what I heard on the news that uh, YouTube is taking down videos explaining how to put guns together. Uh, several videos I've watched how to put guns together more than just fill stripping it. It shows you how to put together those several other pieces. And now they're taking those videos down. And so, you know, that information is lost. Um, or, you know, or at least it's not readily accessible to people who may be looking for that information. And this is at a time when the people were white people 
uh, they already have they already have enough guns to go around to to arm all their people. But now that you know it's possible for black people to start getting arms, now they take down all the instructional videos of how to put guns together, whether by scrap or whether by the parts that you find. Um, but they were going into real, real uh, deep detail in those videos. And it's just, it's gone now, or at least according to the news report, they're taking them down off of YouTube. So that's something I wanted to report. Thank you. Download uh, YouTube videos. I think that's uh, important, or not necessarily YouTube, but uh, they have lots of uh, sites available and different means where you can download YouTube content. If you think it's something that is of constructive value that might disappear, this is not the first time that I've heard about constructive content being uh, eliminated. A person wrote in to answer our caller in the great state of Virginia, the Commonwealth, the question about tipping. Uh, she wrote in, this is our call in Wisconsin. She said, I always try to go to black owned restaurants and I tip 20% or more. If I'm at a white restaurant, I ask for a black server. I am very uncomfortable with being served by white people in restaurants. I don't tip white people at all. That is extraordinarily uncommon hearing that uh, from black people in my experience. Uh, anybody that we missed completely, is anybody else that has a hand up that we've not heard from at all? Do we get everybody? Just making sure we didn't uh, have an oversight. We got everybody. Spectacular. Uh, HV, did you have uh, an additional comment you were going to get in, ma'am? Wow. Um, I actually did. Um, well, I had one quick question. Uh, was that uh, the caller, the software developer in Wisconsin? I would... don't know. I would wager no, but there are multiple black female callers in Wisconsin, but I don't think this is the software person who wrote in. And okay. since I did have the floor, really quickly before I give the floor back, uh, the commentary or this news clip about the race soldier who was yelling and saying, get out of my neighborhood and, and all of that, that was a white woman. Uh, who was doing that she was caught she had signed she had written nigger on paper and put it up on her uh, windows and was yelling in the morning uh the reason that i played that is because i have been a huge advocate for a number of years almost a decade now of saying when we say racism white supremacy that is not white male patriarchy uh equal partners uh, if you are minimizing the role that white women white women play you are making a dangerous mistake and that is not the first time that I've seen incidents where white women are leading some sort of violent attack uh, against non-white people. Speaking of Chicago, there was that incident in Chicago not that long ago where a white woman, she became violent. She began spitting. Uh, it was on a black male and his uh, female partner. Uh, they got video of that, but it's lots of incidents. That video from a few years back, a white woman got angry and threw, uh, threw her coffee on a black uh, male's vehicle. Uh, it's tons of those uh, types of incidents. And this happened at the uh, black male's residence. Uh, just the importance increasing incidents of direct white violence from white men and white women. Very important. HV? Oh, yes. Um, um, well, as far, as far as the uh, the, the tipping, uh, I totally agree with uh, what you said, Gus. I think that, you know, it was excellent advice, and I was, that's what I was thinking as well. 
say, you know, I don't want to go to, you know, just white, white restaurants or whatever unless uh, absolutely necessary. And I don't want to tip them. But, you know, if I have to go again, you know, I might, uh, you know, tip and, and, you know, do something minimal or, you know, just, just something that will, I guess, reduce the, the mistreatment if I go back again. I'm not even sure that that necessarily would be an issue because I wouldn't go very frequently anyway. Um as far as um it was something that someone brought up earlier that uh I was thinking about um, I don't know i don't wanna I don't wanna waste the time, but actually i I did have a question though, and I don't know if this is appropriate if not, I can just you know, throw my email out there, or I could just do it another way. But I really wanted to ask the callers if, because uh, I'm thinking that the name that I go by, HV, is kind of difficult to remember and somewhat even pronounce. It's just kind of how it feels to me. And I was thinking of another another name, which pretty much means the same thing, which is Ivy, which is a play on the, the initials IV, intensely victimized. And I was going to ask if, if people on the line thought that Ivy, like IVY, was easier to remember than HV. And I'll uh, just, you know, get a yes or no. But if that's not appropriate, Gus, then, you know, I'll definitely just, you know, forget about it and try to just think of something. Can I be heard? I can hear you. Yeah, um, I, I think that uh, Ivy is a, uh, I-V-Y um, is a better, um, is a, is a better uh, name. Uh, and uh, I think it uh, sounds better, and I think that it, it leaves itself open for um, enhanced branding opportunities if that's something that you want to go forward with. Um, but uh, I also wanted to um, just alert uh, the, um, uh, the the listeners to a situation that uh, recently occurred in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, a, a suspected white supremacist, uh, um, her name is Crystal Gross, has been uh, released from jail um, there, and she will not uh, receive any charges. Um, this is after uh, she reportedly stabbed her, uh, I guess, her uh, boyfriend, I think it is. Uh, I think, no, it's her, her fiancé, um, her she stabbed her fiance, and uh, her fiance was a um, a victim of racism um, named Amir Bay, and uh, she stabbed him one time, and uh, allegedly uh, he died, and uh, she was uh, um, held under suspicion of a crime, and then she was not uh, charged, and she was released. And I think that this is very interesting because um, n- uh, no jury. Um, there has, there was no trial. Uh, this was all, I guess, summarily decided on by a, uh, uh, I guess, by the police. So um, we have a dead body, and uh, we have no, uh, uh, no charges, um, and we know who did it, and we, uh, and apparently this was, uh, this was started by a. Um, a, a verbal confrontation that took place at their uh, sister's uh, place. So 
Um, you know, a fight can, you can be in a tragic arrangement with a, a victim of, or a suspected white supremacist. They can instigate a, a domestic situation. Um, they can kill you in that situation and, uh, they can go ahead and walk, uh, from that situation with no charges. So, um, proceed with caution if you are going to, uh, go ahead and, uh, find yourself in a tragic arrangement. Last 10 minutes of the broadcast. Uh, if other folks have commentary that they wanted to share, you should speak now. Yeah, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, can still. <laughs> Always on 100. Always on 100. Ivy, uh, HV, I, I remember HV because, I, I, you know, I hear you say that that's your name so much, but I, I definitely understand the transition to Ivy. Um, Gus, I had a question. Um, you had a non-black female on the uh, on the show maybe a couple weeks ago or a couple days ago, um, and she said uh, she knew of a wonderful white woman, this, this wonderful white woman that she was speaking of. Um, did you, did she ever send you the email of who the wonderful white woman was? I read it today. Dr. Peggy McIntosh. <laughs> Thank you. <That's> so... <laughs> Dr. Peggy McIntosh. Wow. People can contrast that to her performance when she was a guest on the program. Uh, other folks, uh, any other comments, folks, or questions folks had to get in? I remember, uh, to your question, HV, I remember HV, so that would just be something new to remember, uh, that it's now going to be Ivy. But uh, hopefully my victimized state that will not be asking too much. Uh, I think I can I think I can manage. Uh, do we have other folks who had comments, questions they needed to get in? Can I be here? Yes, sir. Gus, this is a question to you. Uh, did Christy Tyler ever get back to you about that phone that she promised? <laughs> she, 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 in a very tacky manner, made her exit, I think, when she was on this past summer after she talked about her daughter's uh, summer color and, and said that she would uh, perhaps hook up for the phone and the book. That was it. It was the phone and the book, and she reneged on all of the above. Ow. <laughs> even and I even people wanted the book. The phone was not, you know, major priority. That's you know, would have been nice, but whatever. But uh the book was more important because I did have non white people who wanted her book and I I read her book. Uh I have it as a Kindle, which is not quite as easy to share. Uh, but she sent me a copy, uh, uh, like on a Google Drive, right? That's like a PDF that I shared with lots of people who did, you know, said they wanted to read the book. Reading is important, right on. But she wouldn't even do that. That's what I mean. Like tacky as can be, where she had already said multiple times that, oh yeah, black people should get my book for free and give it away and blah blah blah. And you know, absolutely, I'll make sure that they can, you know, get it. And she wouldn't even do that. Tacky as can be. That's another cowbell. I forgot. Thank Tyler. you. Yes, sir. <laughs> Uh, other folks uh, that, that anybody else have question, comment, suggestion they need to get in before we conclude? 
see, I uh, remembered a little bit of what I was going to say. Hello, caller from the 712 back again. Um, I just wanted to say about the lady that uh, at the end, the end of cows, the end of the news clips, when the lady said, um, you know, they sent me a letter talking about the real estate agency or whoever buys property, and they asked her for, you know, did she want to get in on it? And she told them the price of her property, and they wouldn't honor it. So good for her, black self-respect, even though they will, they will make her move if they really want to, let's be honest. And my second thing was I went to, um, uh, real quick, I went to uh, like a race conference here at, in, in Sioux City, Iowa. It wasn't called race conference. It was a race and white privilege in our area. And I went to that and it wasn't nothing constructive really happened. And they had food. And people talked a lot, but I just don't feel like anything constructive got done, except I got to take my youngest daughter, and she stood up and, and said something, so she was able to interact in that in that space, and I felt good about that, but it, I don't feel like anything important happened. Okay, I'll move my line. Did they give a definition for racism? I'm sorry? What did you say? Did they give a definition for racism? Gus, they did not give a definition for racism. No, not that. No, I would have. I would have remembered. No, they did not. Okay, that's the sort of thing I try to uh, make a point of, uh, and and I mean like a disruptive point, meaning uh, like what you just said, like stand up and say that on the microphone. Like uh, I have reason to believe uh, based on the fact that there's been no definition given of the term racism. And I'm supposed to think that we're seriously addressing this issue. I have reason to believe that we're wasting time. Uh, and in fact, that if there are whites that are involved, this might be an act of white supremacy racism to come here and waste our time today, making us think that we're seriously addressing a problem when there is no intention of doing so at all because we don't even have the problem defined like you don't have to say that verbatim but i mean you can get everybody's attention and disrupt the whole uh meeting and i've done that before and seen where other people have done that before just getting up ask a, i did that at the uh white privilege conference uh, a couple of times and you generally will have more latitude there'll be a little uh there'll be a little slower to get security and throw you out than if you try and do that sort of thing at the bank or the loan office gotcha uh, if anyone, anything concise, you can get in in 30 seconds. Final comment before we wrap things up. Gus, quick, quick question. Quick question. Quick question. Um, what does the term serious mean to you? What is the term serious? Uh, yes. Something that is urgent. Uh, something that is critical, uh, something that is, you know, this is not a, a trifle or small affair. Anything else? Everybody satisfied or anything else uh, folks can be concise about? If everyone's satisfied, that's grand as well. We should be here later in the week uh, specifically about the Austin situation. Uh, I've been working to try to get broadcasts on that as well. Uh, just check the Black Talk Radio Network schedule as well as the Facebook page uh, for the updates. Uh, did we miss anybody or folks satisfied? Yes, I had one quick question um, since I'm new to the broadcast. Um, you use the term VGQ. I'm not sure what that means. Victims 
guaranteed qualified. That is in Mr. Neely Fuller Jr.'s uh, code book. Uh, you can visit his website, producejustice.com. Uh, it means, uh, simply it means if a person is classified as non-white, victim of white supremacy, they are qualified to take any position that they want to on racism, white supremacy. That means I don't have to agree with it. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't have to be true. Just on the basis of them being a victim of racism, they can take any position that they like. And the only reason that that's used, uh, Mr. Fuller uh, created that concept is to minimize confusion. That way I don't have to argue with another non-white person if we disagree about racism. Hey, VGQ, you can take whatever position that you want. That is your right. You're qualified as a victim of racism. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Red in Nevada. May I be heard real quick? Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, real quick. I wanted to add, um, I know you talked about Austin. Um, here, I only saw, like, it literally was, like, two minutes where they said quickly where, okay, well, the the, um, the suspected bomber, the suspected terrorist, he blew himself up. And then I wanted to just say something quick about Stephen Paddock, the, um, the MG, MGM uh, shooter. Now they're coming out with this video after so many months where they're saying, oh, well, we could have, we saw in the videos where we could have told that we saw his behavior and that kind of, that would have, um, how he was agitated. So we could have stopped it, but we didn't. So, and we meaning the white people. And that's all at, um, thank you. That is the second time I keep thinking I moved my microphone and I did not. Uh, That should wrap us for this week's compensatory call in, although we should be here uh, within a matter of days uh, with another broadcast about the Austin situation, hoping to spend more time on that. And for that reason, exactly. I just uh, that's the sense that I've had. I know I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest, but the general sense I've had is that this has not received adequate coverage at all, uh, which, again, is common, predictable in the system of white supremacy. But uh, if folks have additional uh, questions, thoughts. That's uh, the next Sunday show. Global Sunday Talk. I'm slowly trying to get everything back uh, on schedule uh, from the flood. I keep thinking that, oh, okay, we'll be back, have everything back this March and just other disruptions and things happen. I'm hoping, uh, I don't know if it'll be tomorrow, but uh, I'm hoping we will have uh, our Global Sunday Talk broadcast back uh, so we can get all uh, our international callers, Mr. Fox and Stacy June, get all of them back as well. But uh, thanks, everyone, for their patience. Uh, is just trying to recuperate from uh, the dislocation. Uh, but at any rate, again, just check the Black Talk Radio uh, page, Facebook, uh, for the next broadcasts that are coming this week. Uh, if you have any other questions, uh, problems accessing content with the archives, uh, comments about the book uh, that we're reading, uh, anything else, gripes, untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, Much obliged. Thanks to all the folks who dialed in. I hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, They have racists. They 
have been very successful at exploiting and taking advantage of non-white people when we are not thinking correctly because we are under the influence of some of their poisons. Uh, I think we would be well served. I know Dr. Welsing would surely agree. Let's preserve our brain computers. Let's preserve our health. Take care of our bodies as best we can. Racists, they can keep all of their narcotics. We are going to have healthy brain computers so we can think clearly, come up with new solutions, codification, really, uh, to solve the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, certainly, if you're out and about this week, buckle up. Uh, let's do everything that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. Uh, and quickly, the comment I think Mr. Steele mentioned, uh, man brought gun, stolen NYPD SWAT gear into, into Chicago's Union Station. Uh, a man who was armed with a loaded gun and wearing a bulletproof vest on Friday at Union Station had stolen a New York Police Department duffel bag full of SWAT equipment, according to Cook County prosecutors. They have a photo of this person uh, who's 21 very young suspected race soldier who knows what plans he had for the great windy city we will be back much obliged uh, creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.